Welcome to the August Dermalogic Surgery Podcast and Beyond the Digest Supplemental Podcast. I am the podcast editor, Naomi Lawrence. In this month's podcast, we present the articles in an interactive journal club format. For the articles focused on Mohs, cancer, and reconstruction, we have Amy Green doing the article summaries and Mark Brown as our senior expert editor with commentaries. For the articles focused on cosmetic procedures, we have Ardalyn Minokata doing the article summaries and Deirdre Hooper providing insights and tips. It is a star cast that I know you will enjoy. In Beyond the Digest, we have an article which highlights the need to address access to most micrographic surgery and coverage among Medicaid beneficiaries, which is a letter in response to an online article, Non-Melanoma Skin Cancer and Mohs Utilization in the Medicaid Patients. Thank you for listening and have a happy surgery day. This segment of the episode features surgical oncology and reconstructive article reviews. My name is Amy Green, and I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Mark Brown from the University of Rochester today as we review surgery articles for this month's issue of Derm Surgery Digest. I will give a short review of the surgery articles for the August issue, followed by some expert commentary by Dr. Brown. We have lots of great articles to cover today, so we're going to dive right in. So the first article we will be reviewing is cartilage tissue engineering for nasal ALR and auricular reconstruction, a critical review of the literature and implications for practice in dermatologic surgery by first author, Dr. Heimless, and senior author, Dr. Desiree Ratner out of NYU. So when cartilage grafting is necessary for reconstruction, autologous cartilage grafting is currently the standard but can have some challenges based on donor cartilage quality and quantity. Tissue engineered cartilage has shown some promise for nasal and auricular reconstruction. It is generated through harvested chondrocytes seeded within a scaffold, which is composed of either natural or synthetic material that mimics the 3D structure of native cartilage. For brevity's sake, I will direct you towards the paper for a more in-depth description of the generation of these constructs. The authors performed a literature search on the use of these tissue-engineered cartilage graphs for facial reconstruction and found 27 articles meeting criteria for review. Table 1 reviews all the studies included, so I will again direct you towards that. For nasal reconstruction, the first in-human trial was in Switzerland in 2014, where five patients with ALR defects had tissue-engineered graphs placed under interpolation flaps. The chondrocytes were harvested from the patient's nasal septum at the time of biopsy and seated in a scaffold to create the grafts. A biopsy six months later after the grafts had been placed revealed that the grafts had been remodeled into fibrofatty tissue similar to the native ALA. For ear reconstruction, the first human trial was done on four patients with microtia where chondrocytes were harvested from the patient's auricular cartilage and expanded using chondrocyte multilayering. Cells were injected into the patient's abdomen and then the newly formed cartilage blocks were surgically removed after months. 
3D printing has also come into play in recent years to create both nasal and auricular cartilage, and several papers have looked at this with promising yet early results showing similar properties of tissue engineered cartilage to native cartilage. Several studies are also looking at variations in the bioink composition, which is composed of the cells and scaffolding. Though cartilage, uh, autologous cartilage grafting, which is usually from the nasal septum, concha, antihelix, or rib, is the mainstay, it does have complications, including donor site morbidity, the amount of cartilage available, as well as the quality. Allergenic and synthetic, gra synthetic grafts have been studied, but have increased risk of rejection and extrusion. Tissue-engineered cartilage may be able to combat some of the limitations of the autologous, allergenic, and synthetic grafts, especially when it comes to graft quality. This review has shown promising early research into tissue-engineered cartilage and its variability or its viability in animal models. Our understanding of its integration into human tissue does remain limited, and larger, more robust studies are required. It's, it is important for us as dermatologic surgeons, though, to be aware of this research. So Dr. Brown, what are your thoughts on this article? I actually learned quite a bit because I knew very little about cartilage tissue engineering. Um, to be honest with you, a lot of it still sounds a little bit like sci-fi. Um, I don't think it's, you know, we're any, anywhere is quite ready for prime time yet. Um, I'm not so sure it's gonna happen while I'm still in practice, maybe when you're still in practice. Amy, it'll be something that'll be uh, realized. You know, for what we do when we need to borrow cartilage, um, I don't find it terribly difficult um, to borrow cartilage when we need to, you know, either from the ear. Um, I don't really take very much from the nasal septal area. Most of the time it's from the ear. And I think it's because most of the time the defects that we're dealing with are a little bit smaller. Obviously, if you have a much larger defect, I think this you know, would have great potential. I think probably this whole concept of growing chondrocytes and using 3D printing is probably going to be more utilized for things like, you know, kids born without an ear um, or when someone, you know, has to have something really major done um, to their nose. So I think it was fascinating. You know, I looked at the 27 studies, the outline, there was a lot of information there. It's obviously more than I thought had been going on. But I think it's it's going to be a ways to go before we see this, you know, happening reality. Um, but I, you know, there's been an awful lot in the literature about what's happening with 3D printing. Um, right. You know, even things like oh, we're going to eventually be printing up a new organ that we're going to be able to utilize. So I think it's exciting. Um, but I think in the meantime, we're still going to be borrowing cartilage from the ear and doing what we've been doing all along. I agree with you. Do you have a favorite place to harvest when you need cartilage or is it just dependent on the defect? Yeah, if I'm if it's a smaller piece of cartilage that I need to use, if I'm just trying to put a little bit of extra support down at the lower LR rim, I usually like to use the um, anti-helix just because I think it it um, has a nice bowing to it. Um, if I need a larger piece, then I usually will go post-auricular. Um, Patients sometimes complain about a little bit of discomfort in that area, but not significant enough. And no one's really complained much about, you know, the final cosmetic result when you borrow cartilage. So those are my favorite areas that I like to borrow from. Excellent. 
All right, so we're going to move on to our next article. It's entitled Prognostic Analysis of Patients with EMPD Treated with Conservative Excision by Dr. Sio and senior author uh, Dr. Uji out of Japan. So as we know, EMPD or extramammary Paget's disease is a rare tumor, most commonly affecting individuals over the age of 50, mainly in the vulva, although it can be in the axilla as well as the perineum. When in, the, when in situ disease with no underlying malignancy, the survival rates of these tumors are pretty high. Standard of care is usually surgical excision with wide local excision or Mohs micrographic surgery, although in elderly patients with extensive disease, this can be really high morbidity. The authors retrospectively analyzed 69 cases of EMPD without regional or distant metastasis to compare prognosis of conservative excision compared to wide local excision. The 69 patients were from their own hospital and were divided into wide, the wide local excision group, which was 58 patients where the resection was at least one centimeter margins from the clinically apparent tumor, and the conservative excision group, which was 11 patients defined as any other surgery. All patients in the wide local excision group had clear histologic margins compared to the patients in the conservative group, which had positive histologic margins. Clinical data was obtained, including the primary tumor site, tumor size, performance status of the patient, histological infiltration, clinical stage, post-operative complications, the hospital, hospital, hospitalization period, the anesthesia method used, the overall survival, and the metastasis-free survival, which can be seen in table one. Histologic invasion was divided into in situ, microinvasive, which meant scattered or discrete invasion of the upper dermis, and invasive, which was anything more than that. The uh, performance status was measured with the ECOG performance scale, with zero being fully active and five being deceased. The majority of patients were had a performance status of zero, so were fully active, and the median tumor diameter was 8.5 centimeters. 51% had in situ disease, and the rest were equally sp split between microinvasive and invasive. The highest clinical stage was stage two, but the majority of st was stage zero, so I do think that's important to note. There was no significant difference in site, tumor size, histologic infiltration, the stage of the tumor, the amount of uh, stay in the hospital, or frequency of postoperative complications between the groups. There was significantly more women in the conservative group, and the age and the ECOG scale was higher, which is uh, not surprising to me. 34 patients were followed at least two years, five in the conservative group and 29 in the wide excision group with no deaths. The Kaplan-Meier and log rank test found no significant difference in overall survival between the two groups. Metastasis-free survival, though, was shorter in the conservative group. So symptoms that were resulting from incomplete ex excision most commonly was pruritus, and that was easily controlled with topical creams. The authors did mention that Mohs surgery is a great treatment option for this tumor given the extensive subclinical spread, but does require specific infrastructure, which is not always available. So this paper suggests that conservative excision with or without uh, additional non-surgical management, so some of these patients did have either uh, radiation therapy or amiquimod, uh, that it may be an appropriate option for a subset of patients. 
There are limitations inherent to every retrospective study, and the conservative group was very small. So I do think there definitely needs to be larger studies to compare the overall survival and the metastasis-free survival between margin negative and essentially margin positive surgery. And also of note, the study also focused on early stage disease. So I think that's important to keep in mind. So Dr. Brown, can you comment on how extramammary Paget's disease is managed at your institution? And if you have any additional comments on this study? Yeah, let me, well, at, at our institution, uh, we do MOS and um, we use IHC, which is, you know, I think added significantly to um, getting a better prognosis. You know, in the days when I used H&E, I always felt I was able to track track out the tumor pretty well, but my recurrence rate was always a little bit higher than I wanted it to be. And again, the numbers of patients that we take care of are small. Um, and in my experience, most of the patients referred to my practice were more men than in women. I think a lot of times the females often end up in GYN, whereas the urologists have a tendency to send us these patients. But they're challenging patients, they're difficult tumors, they're challenging areas, they're quite large. Um, and so it is, it is um, a challenge, but the surgery that we do is outpatient surgery. The had a couple of problems with this particular article. You pointed out one, which was the conservative excision group was extremely small. It was only 11 patients. But even um, with those patients, you know, they were in the hospital for a month, you know, we, which really surprised me. And we just don't end up putting patients in the hospital after the surgery that we do. Um, so I found that really quite surprising. Um, the other thing that surprised me was in their wide local excision group, the 58 patients, all of all the patients had negative margins, which is impressive when you're doing a wide local excision because sometimes it's, you know, three, four, five centimeters to clear these tumors. So when they said they were using at least a centimeter and they had them all clear, I was pretty impressed that that they were able to do that. Um, but the biggest challenge I thought with this paper was that the criteria that they were using for comparing the two groups was whether the patients were alive or dead. And that's really not an issue here. I mean, most of the time, um, patients do not die from extramarinary Paget's disease. The reason we treat it um, is to try to control the symptoms that are associated with it. So what would have been, I think, much more reasonable would be to look at what was their local recurrence. And obviously, in their conservative excision group, you know, by definition, they were all still had disease that was there, which sort of begged the question, why were they even doing the surgery? If they were able just to control the symptoms with some of the topicals that they were using, that would have been more reasonable. The question really comes down to, is there a subset of patients where you shouldn't be doing surgery? So sure, if the patient um, is elderly and frail and has a lot of other comorbidities, then maybe, you know, surgery, including most surgery, is not indicated. Maybe you should consider trying imiquimide. Um, I can think of a patient that I have who has bilateral extramammary, um, extramammary Paget's disease. He's had it for um, probably 10 plus years, and we just control it with imiquimide because he's not going to tolerate surgery to his both axillary vaults. So there's certainly, you know, times that you can do that. So Interesting article. I would not recommend that we just start saying, oh, let's do conservative excisions. I think most surgery, by definition, is pretty conservative because we're just tracking out the tumor. Um, 
but I think the question always is, are there patients that maybe we just shouldn't be doing surgery on and just go right to topicals to try to control the symptoms? Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think another challenge is, is getting, especially in institutions, um, getting other specialties to recognize most surgery as an appropriate treatment option for these patients. Notoriously at our institution, most of them don't come our way. Uh, and so they end up getting pretty radical, you know, excisions. And we've seen that in prior literature too, uh, how so many patients really get extensive surgery when MOS can be a way to help, you know, uh, conserve some tissue. Uh, so I think that that's a challenge that we have, uh, you know, with other specialties. Do you guys use IHC for your extra memory patches now? So we are starting it. It's in its infancy. We started IHC with MART-1 uh, and we are starting the CK-7, but it's very, very early. And like I said, most of the cases, and it's rare to begin with, but I don't think I saw one in fellowship. So they rarely come through yeah. modes here. Yeah. But there's no doubt if you can save a patient, uh, you know, radical vulvectomy versus, you know, doing modes that would hopefully be, you know, better for the patient. Right. All right. So we'll move on to our next article. This is entitled Staging System Performance and Clinical Outcomes for Cutaneous Squamous Cell Carcinoma of the Ear a single center retrospective study by Dr. Navarrete Deschamps and senior author, Dr. Kishwar Nehal out of Memorial Sloan Kettering. So the premise of this study is that cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma on the ear is associated with poor outcomes, but there has been no studies looking at performance of the current staging system in regards to the risk stratifying cutaneous squamous cell in this location. As most of us recall, location on the lip or the ear was included as a high-risk feature in AJCC 7th edition, but has been since removed from the AJCC 8. Brigham and Women's staging system is based on four high-risk features, and lip or ear are not included in that. Uh, so the purpose of this retrospective study was to describe uh, clinicopathologic characteristics and outcomes of invasive squamous cell carcinoma located on the ear and to evaluate the performance of our current staging systems. All biopsy and excision specimen slides were re-reviewed by four of the authors, including a board-certified dermatopathologist. Each tumor was staged based on AJCC 7, 8, as well as Bringman Women's, if the information was available. To compare the performance of the individual staging systems, AKIKE and Information Criterion, or AIC, was calculated after fitting each of the Cox models. Lower AIC scores denoted a model with better performance. So 125 invasive tumors were analyzed. Patient characteristics, again, can be seen in table one. About 90% of the patients were men with an average age of 72 years. 13% of, of the patients were immunosuppressed with a, most of them being solid organ transplant recipients. 79% of the tumors were primary and 20% were recurrent. The median diameter of tumors were 1.2 centimeters and most were moderately differentiated. The median tumor depth was five millimeters and 34% had PNI and 16% had lymphovascular invasion. And I just wanna highlight that because that's pretty high. So this is a, you know, a large referral center. Um, 
the radiologic lymph node involvement noted uh, was noted in 16%. So median follow-up times was about 22 months. And at the time of chart review, 63% of the patients were alive. 18 of the 46 deaths, so about 40% were due to cutaneous, the cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. Factors associated with overall survival and disease-specific survival are seen in table one, and they're not surprising. So older age, lymphovascular invasion, previous radiation therapy, if it was a recurrent tumor, if, lymph, if there was a lymph node noted on imaging or on excision, higher uh, AJCC stage, so T3, T4, and AJCC7 and 8, and then T2B, T3 for Brigham and women's staging, and then, of course, lymph, no lymph node metastasis and local regional recurrence were all risk factors. To evaluate the performance of the existing staging systems for overall survival, separate Cox proportional hazard models were developed, which can be seen in Table 2 and Figure 1. The AJCC system showed comparable hazard ratio for the T2 and the T3, T4 disease, while the Brigham and Women's Health T or Brigham and Women's Staging System T3 had the highest observed hazard ratio, with these patients being six times more likely to die from their disease compared to T1. The AIC estimates, estimates indicated that Brigham and Women's Staging System performed better than the AJCC 7 or 8. The most common treatment modality was wide local excision, followed closely by Mohs. Adjuvant radiotherapy was used in 7% of the cases, and a sentinel lymph node biopsy was done in 24% of the cases. 18% developed lymph node metastases, and 16% developed distant metastasis. So that, again, these are pretty high-risk tumors included in the study. Treatment with Mohs surgery had a lower lower rate of local regional recurrence compared to wide local excision, but the tumors that were treated with Mohs surgery had significantly different tumor characteristics. So they were well-differentiated tumors, they were smaller size, and had a lower T-stage. So in this study, the predictors of local regional recurrence, overall survival, and disease-specific survival for cutaneous squamous cell of the ear were similar to risk factors for squamous cell carcinoma arising in other anatomic locations, which confirmed that these risk factors can improve risk stratification in this location. It also showed good performance of the current staging systems, although Brigham and Women's performed the best, which is what I have found to be similar in other publications. The study has also showed patients treated with Mohs surgery had lower local regional recurrence, but this must be interpreted critically as there were several differences in tumor characteristics that could have contributed to this outcome. Overall, this is a great study confirming that cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma on the ear can behave aggressively, yet risk factors predicting poor outcomes in non-ear cutaneous squamous cell were the same for ear squamous cell, which suggests the current staging systems perform well in risk stratifying these patients. So, Dr. Brown, can you do you have any comments on this article? Sure, always got a comment. Um, it, I thought it was an interesting article. You know, back in the day, we tried to identify certain anatomic areas that might be more high risk, and we always used to talk about the ear and the lower lip. Um, actually, I'd like to see the same study done for the lip to see if that also shows the same results. But this was back before we had some of the more robust staging systems that we currently have. And I think the point of this article is that, you know, we probably do not need to use 
um, anatomic sites um, in our current staging system. And I think that's what, you know, uh, Brigham and Women's and AJCC8 have, have shown that obviously the factors that are more important are depth of invasion, histologic grade, um, PNI, lymphovascular invasion. I mean, those are the those are the ones that are much more important. Sure, sometimes on the lower lip, it might be a little bit worse because you're going to get down into the muscle a little bit quicker. Um, and so those factors are still going to be there. But I thought it was a, a good article from the point of view of saying that, yeah, these can be aggressive tumors, but the staging system that we have, especially, the, you know, BWH seems to be really quite um, good for predicting, you know, how they're going to behave. Um, and I, I was impressed as you were, Amy, that this was um, a pretty bad subset of patients. Um, first of all, it was 125 patients over 14 years. It seems like my number would have been higher than that, um, you know, especially in a referral center, but they had, you know, obviously bad tumors coming through. A, the overall mortality for these patients was 15%, which is really high, but I think that's just given the fact that it was probably a referral of some pretty bad cases. So bottom line, um, you know, ear can be aggressive, but the current staging systems that we have are adequate for um, determining the factors that we need to be looking at. Do you use both AJCC8 as well as Brigham and Women's in your in your notes for staging system for squamous? Um, I do, but I, I'm still leaning a little bit more towards uh, Brigham and Women's is the one that I think is a little bit more helpful right now, uh, but we do utilize both of them. Do you ever uh, recommend adjuvant radiation based on stage, and do you use the Brigham and Women's in that scenario? We do. We do. Yep. You know, and always... Um, the challenge always, I think, is that sometimes these patients who you are recommending radiation for are sometimes, you know, more um, fragile elderly patients. You know, it's your, you know, 82-year-old gentleman with a, you know, bad squamous cell carcinoma. Then, you know, you tell them, hey, you've got a 20% risk of metastatic disease or maybe higher. And they'll say, well, that's not bad. It's 80% chance that I'm not going to have it. And I don't really want to go through a month of radiation. Um, but we always discuss it with them and we say, you know, here's your risk factors. Um, these are the numbers. And and we at least have that discussion. So yes, and, and we have a radiation oncologist who's very good, who, you know, knows that, you know, these patients are at high risk based on the staging system. Excellent. Alrighty, so moving on to our next article entitled is Mohs Micrographic Surgery is Equivalent to Nail Unit Excision or Amputation for Melanoma in Situ of the Nail Unit, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis by Dr. Michelle Lee and Senior Author Dr. David Salati. Nail unit melanoma accounts for less than 3% of all melanomas, and historically, the mainstay of treatment has been digital amputation at various levels. Recent studies have shown that the utility of digit-sparing techniques like on-block resection or Mohs surgery, particularly, particularly for melanoma in situ of the nail unit. The aim of this systematic review was to determine if local recurrence between treatment modalities of Mohs surgery uh, nail unit excision or amputation if there were any differences in local recurrence. So 20 studies ultimately met inclusion criteria 
there were seven two-arm studies and 13 single-arm studies. Analysis of the data from the comparative studies demonstrated that the local recurrence rate was about 4% after nail unit excision and about 3% after amputation. Pairwise meta-analysis revealed an odds ratio of 0 0.9 with a 95% confidence, confidence interval of 0.2 to 3.7. In the 13 non-comparative studies, the pooled local recurrence estimates of the 23 cases that underwent Mohs surgery was 11%, and the pooled local recurrence estimates of the 140 cases undergoing nail unit excision was 8.4%. The differences between these pooled estimates was not statistically significant. Pooled data from all 20 studies revealed that the local recurrence rates of cases that underwent Mohs surgery was 8.69%, 4.72% for nail unit excision, and 2.94% for amputation. The Fisher exact test revealed no statistically significant difference between the three modalities. So this symptom, systematic review provides additional evidence of the potential benefit of digit sparing surgical modalities in treating melanoma in situ of the nail unit. Although the studies currently published are very small, uh, prospective and retrospective observational studies. So more uh, control, prospective randomized control studies and larger observational studies are needed really to more accurately assess local recurrence rates. Dr. Brown, can you comment on this article as well as how melanoma in situ of the nail unit is approached at your institution? Sure. Well, first of all, um, it's interesting when they say that there's no statistical significance between the groups, but when you actually look at the numbers, um, for what I do day in, day out, it seems like it's, it's a significant number. I mean, I was surprised that the most surgery number, the recurrence was as high as it was, you know, the pooled results, you know, somewhere is around 8% in the non-compared studies, 11%. So that was a little bit higher than I would have expected. Most of the time when we're talking about Mohs surgery for, you know, melanoma in situ, you know, we're talking about a local recurrence rate of less than 2%. Now, Obviously, this might have been before we're using, you know, MART1 stains, which would, you know, maybe improve those numbers. And obviously, the number is small. You know, it always makes me a little bit nervous when I'm trying to come up with significant conclusions when we're talking about 23 cases of Mohs surgery for, you know, treating the melanoma in situ. I also want to state clearly that I don't think there's ever, ever an indication for doing an amputation for melanoma in situ. You know, we use amputation if we have, you know, um, a deeper melanoma that's more invasive. I think that's the standard of care. Um, oftentimes in our institution, when we present these patients, if it's a deep invasive tumor that needs to be controlled, then sometimes distal amputation is the way to go. But certainly for melanoma in situ or for a T1A melanoma of the nail, I think most surgery is definitely the way to go. Um, and hopefully with, with MART1 staining, the results are going to be better than, than the numbers that we're seeing here. Great. So our next study, uh, we'll move on to our next study 
It's entitled Proliferating Pilar Tumors in the Scalp Over a Period of 23 Years in a General Hospital in Mexico City. And this was out of the University of Mexico. So proliferating pilar tumors occur on the scalp most frequently in females. This was a retrospective single institution study looking at the frequency of proliferating pilar tumors in the scalp. 144 histopathologic studies with the diagnosis of pilar cyst or trichelemal cyst were reviewed and 17 were found to be proliferating pilar tumor or pro proliferating trichelemal cyst. 76% of these were female with an average age of 55 years. All cases were located on the scalp. Tumor sizes range from one to eight centimeters with the average being three centimeters. Three cases were diagnosed as malignant proliferating pilar tumors treated with additional surgical resection. The authors describe a, pro a pro proposed classification system by Yi and colleagues that can be seen in table one. So this was interesting. I actually, I learned something by reading this. It's the classification system was uh, split into type one, two, and three, and it was based on histologic findings and had variance, varying degrees of recurrence rates uh, that they put. So I'll direct you towards that table. I thought that that was very interesting. Uh, for malignant lesions, surgical excision is the mainstay of treatment, although some studies have shown that these tumors are radiosensitive. I think this is a good reminder of a rare diagnosis uh, that should be on the differential uh, for growing scalp tumors. Um, just in practice, when I come across patients with uh, you know, classic pilar tumors, I always counsel them that if the area is growing rapidly or becomes painful or anything like that, that it does really require surgical excision. I also have a very low threshold to biopsy cysts because I've had several mimickers that I've been very surprised at uh, when biopsying. So I think it's important, even though something looks pretty classic when it comes to either pilar cysts or uh, epidermal inclusion cysts, there's so many things, desmoplastic melanoma, DFSPs that have been treated as cysts for years and years. So I do think, you know, this is something you need to counsel patients on. Uh, Dr. Uh, Brown, do you have any comments on the article? Yeah, I, um, yeah, the article itself, um, you know, was sort of interesting. I mean, this is a very rare tumor. We don't really see very many of these compared to, you know, the more benign uh, pilar tumor cyst that we see all the time. But I think the point that they make that, is that there is that very small percentage that can be malignant and you don't want to miss that. And you make an excellent point, Amy, that you know, when you have these patients and they do have something that's growing, you know, quickly in size, I think the average size in this group was three centimeters. Um, so, you know, a little bit larger that you probably should get rid of it and put in a bottle and just to make sure. And most of these are going to be benign, uh, but you don't want to miss the one that um, potentially could be malignant or you don't want to miss something else. I agree with you, Amy. It's very, it's always a, a little, makes me a little bit nervous when there's something underneath the skin and I can't see it. You know, like, okay, I think it's a cyst, but I'd really love to know what's sitting underneath there. So, great. Yeah. All righty. So, the next couple of minutes, we're going to spend reviewing the re reconstructive conundrums. So, the first one is repair of a cartilage, uh, cruise of the helix defect on the ear by Dr. Fuchter and senior author Dr. Michael Coons. So they describe a 71-year-old male uh, with a kidney transplant who had a poorly differentiated squamous cell carcinoma on his right helical cruise. 
tumor extirpation resulted in a defect encompassing the helical crus, the superior and inferior inferior cura of the antihelix, the simbaconca, and the preauricular cheek. And this defect can be seen in figure one. The authors discuss various reconstructive options that could be utilized in similar defects, including second intent healing, full thickness uh, skin grafts, or various flap reconstructions. Due to the defects spanning multiple subunits, a combined closure with a retroauricular transposition flap for the helical root and a rhombic double Z from the inferior cheek uh, for the cheek and concha, uh, concha portion were utilized. A small a burrows graft for the remaining concha was, was used. Uh, the area healed nicely uh, with the maintenance of the native ear contour. So Dr. Brown, do you have any comments on this conundrum? Yeah, it's... Um... You know, it's a nice result. Um, there's a lot of work. <laughs> you know, I mean, you've got two transposition flaps. You've got um, a graft. So there's there's a lot of surgery that's being done for this defect. Um, you know, the ear is always a challenge. I think in this particular case, you know, you have to approach it as different cosmetic units. You know, how are you going to take care of what's going on with the preauricular defect? And I think a transposition flap is a nice way to take care of that. Um, as far as the heel rim and the rest of the ear with intact cartilage, you know, grafting is always one of my go-to um, reconstructive options that I use if I have intact cartilage. I just think grafting works really well. Um, people like pull-through flaps. They're always fun to do and they work quite well. But you can't argue with um, the results here. They got a very nice result. Um, kind of creative thinking, doing, you know, a couple different flaps from different areas to bring it all together. Do you have a favorite modality for closing defects that span the helical root? Uh, good question. Um, I would say a lot of times I do use a transposition flap in that area, um, but I guess it sometimes it depends upon what day of the week it is and, and, and what seems like it's going to be a good way to go. All right, that sounds good. All right, so our next clinical conundrum is entitled Reconstruction of a Large Cheek Defect or a Large Cheek, Nose, and Lip Defect uh, by Dr. Archibald and senior author Dr. Uh, Ian Marr. So they describe an 84 year old woman with a large basal cell carcinoma of her left cheek, upper lip, and nasal sidewall. The tumor was cleared in two stages with an impressive resulting defect of 7.6 by 6.4 centimeters, and it's down to the muscle spanning the cheek, the upper cutaneous lip, the nasal ala, and the nasal sidewall. This can be seen in figure one. The, for reconstruction, the defect was broken down into subunits, so a large IPF flap uh, was used for the lateral cheek and the neck. Uh, to close the cheek and upper lip portion, and then a paramedian forehead flap was selected for the nasal sidewall and the alar portion. And so the island pedicle flap was chosen over a cervical facial rotation flap because of the extra soft tissue recruitment. So they commented because there was such a tissue loss, it was down to the muscle, that they thought that an island pedicle flap with the robust uh, pedicle would help bring in some of that extra soft tissue that they were missing. Also, the tension vectors of the flap were parallel to the free margins of both the lip and the eyelid, which reduces both risk of ectropion as well as eclavian. And the incision lines of the flap were hidden along the upper lip and the infraorbital area, which is oftentimes um, 
kind of a downside of the island pedicle flap, I would say. Sometimes the triangular incision lines are fairly noticeable. Uh, another potential benefit of the island pedicle flap is decreased risk of nasolabial fold blunting due to the deeper attachments of the flap pedicle. For the paramedian forehead flap, they did comment that the Doppler was used to identify the supertrochlear article, or, or, supertrochlear artery, excuse me. So I thought this was a great case of how to tackle a very extensive mid-face defect and I think a very reasonable cosmetic result uh, given, the, uh, given the defect she had. Dr. Brown, what are your comments on this article? Yeah, I was impressed. Uh, this is a challenging defect. Um, when I first looked at it, my first thought was this is going to require a cervical facial rotation flap because, you know, nine times out of 10, that's what, you know, fixes these large cheek defects. Um, so I think it was, um, you know, some interesting thinking outside the box to consider doing this very large island pedicle flap. Um, when I first saw that that's what it did, I thought, whoa, that was, you know, something that I would not have thought of right away, but um, it made good sense. Um, I'm impressed that they were able to do something this large in an 84-year-old under local anesthesia. Um, I'm just wondering how they were able to, you know, you know, utilize that much um, anesthesia and not run into trouble. So maybe they were using the tumescent technique, but that's always one of my concerns when I've done a very long procedure. Obviously, this required a fair amount of local anesthesia just to do the most part of it. And then to say, okay, I'm going to do this very large island pedicle flap and a forehead flap, and I'm still going to try to keep my lidocaine to under 50 cc's, you know, to not run into problems. So that always makes me nervous, but obviously they able they were able to do it and uh, very impressive, very impressive result for a very challenging defect. So kudos to the surgeons because they did a great job with this. Do you use tumescent anesthesia in your practice frequently? No, not frequently. Um, we've used it on occasion, um, but um, probably only because um, we don't always think, you know, ahead of time, like, oh, this is going to be a really large defect and therefore it'd be a good idea to do it because you kind of have to have it ready to go. You have to have the pharmacy prepare it. Um, and you know how it is. Sometimes you run into these big defects after five stages and like, oh, this is bigger than I thought it was going to be. So, yeah, we used to be able to kind of mix it ourselves, which was nice because then if we ran into something that we thought, oh, this was going to be a great use for this, that we'd be able to draw it up. But now we're limited by the pharmacy and we have to give them at least 24 hours notice. Correct. Yeah. We so run into the same, the yeah. same challenges. There. Yeah, that's the challenge. Welcome to the medical center. Yeah. <laughs> Alrighty, so our next article is entitled How We Do It, Modification of the Island Pedicle Flap, the Catapult by Dr. Rosenfeld and Dr. Senior Author Dr. Sigrid Yu out of UCSF. So the island pedicle flap is a workhorse flap for many surgeons, especially in the areas of the upper lip, the cheek, and the nose. It is a very reliable flap, but can sometimes have limited movement, especially in certain areas. The authors describe a modified island pedicle flap designed to aid in increased tissue movement. So the article starts by reviewing traditional island pedicle flap dissection with a broad base, broad base subcutaneous pedicle, which was originally thought to be necessary for flap survival. Newer techniques with a narrower pedicle have shown good viability with increased flap mobility and less tethering. 
The authors add a further modification coined the catapult, which is similar to the narrow pedicle, uh, narrow pedicle, but the dissections created an angle originally pointing away from the leading edge of the flap. So that allows the flap to essentially catapult forward with increased movement. I think this is best demonstrated pictorially, which can be seen in figure 1C of the article. I think the advantages to this are increased flat movement and decreased tethering. The disadvantages, of course, is anytime you decrease the pedicle, there's always a potential for vascular compromise. So I think that you have to take a lot of factors into consideration. Is this patient uh, a smoker or just, you know, are there other things that would make you a little bit more worried about narrowing the pedicle? Um, and of course, you know, you always kind of have to take the advantages and weigh them against the disadvantages. Uh, I think they mentioned the pedicle depth is critically important to preserve the axial vessel. So I think when you're dissecting this flap, uh, even though you're doing a narrow pedicle, you want to make sure that you're diving vertically really down deep to preserve those axial, axial vessels and increase flap viability. So Dr. Brown, do you use this modification or, and do you like island pedicle flaps? Um, I like island pedicle flaps. Um, I've never used this modification. Um, I'll be honest with you, I still get a little bit nervous when I start to narrow my pedicle. And I know that I understand the concept of it's, it's the depth and the vessel. But uh, nonetheless, every time I get a really narrow pedicle, I worry a little bit more about what the overall, uh, you know, vascular take is going to be. Um, so I always have a tendency to have a little bit more you know, of the base to these island pedicle flaps. Um, I, I think this was a cute article. Um, I like, you know, the term catapult or slinging it forward and, you know, um, thought back to, you know, when I was a kid and I would have little airplanes that would sling forward like that. But um, I, um, to be honest with you, I'd, I'd like to see this done because I did have a little bit of trouble conceptualizing how they angled the stock and how they actually did the dissection to get that trailing edge that they talked about. So I might have to take a trip out to San Francisco and watch them do this to uh, clearly understand. But I might have to, I might have to come with you. Uh, yeah. They also <laughs> said that they took, sometimes had to take some of the subcutaneous tissue in front of the leading edge, which makes sense to me because as it catapults forward, I figured it would kind of hit the, the subcutaneous tissue in front of it. So that made a little bit more sense, but I agree. I'd like to see this executed, but I think yep. it's pretty interesting. You know, so maybe next time at the Mo's meeting, we can, you know, get them to do a video of it so we can um, see how it's done. You know, I, I think the concept was it's going to improve movement, you know, and, you know, the, the concept with these island pedicle flaps is make sure you have enough movement to get that primary defect uh, covered. So if it gives extra movement by making it at a narrow pedicle, that's that's a, a great concept. All righty. So the next article is non-melanoma skin cancers and kebnerization in pemphigus patients by Dr. Desrossiers and Dr. Nicholas Sebus from out of Geisinger. So this is a case report of a patient diagnosed with IgG, IgA pemphigus due to findings of supervasular acantholysis, prompting additional biopsies for permanent section analysis, along with both DIF and indirect immunofluorescence, as well as ELISA, which confirmed the diagnosis. Another biopsy in the same patient review, uh, revealed basal cell carcinoma with intrafollicular acantholysis considered with his newly di diagnosed pemphigus. 
There's been several reports in the literature of pemphigus arising in a surgical wound. The proposed mechanism is via the Kebner phenomenon, although further in investigation into this is needed. Some key points brought up by the authors is that active pemphigus lesions can mimic uh, skin cancer and procedures in these patients can further drive formation of new lesions. So I thought this was, you know, an interesting uh, case report and definitely something to keep in mind. It kind of brings to mind other, you know, other inflammatory dermatoses. So I see uh, psoriasis is much more common than um, than pemphigus, but I also, th I think that that inflammatory dermatoses, it's oftentimes really difficult to distinguish that from squamous cell carcinoma. So I think these, some of these patients that really have active inflammatory dermatoses and also have a history of skin cancer, I think their physical exam can be challenging because the lesions can look the same. And I have biopsied several squamous or several psoriasis plaques thinking it's squamous cell carcinoma. Uh, Dr. Brown, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think the problem, the more we do cutaneous oncology, everything starts to look like a cancer. Yeah. So, you know, yes. <laughs> you always so, want oh, to. No, I, I, I kind of forgot what psoriasis looks like. Um, actually, I I thought this was a great pickup. I'm pretty sure I would have missed this on frozen sections. I would not have been thinking of, you know, taking a look there. And I, you know, sometimes you just get so focused on, you know, is there a tumor there or not? Um, I'm not always paying attention to, well, what else is going on? There's inflammation, but yeah, there's always a little bit of inflammation. So I thought this was a, really astute pickup that I know frozen section Mo's day, you could say, hey, this could be pemphigus. Um, and then they were able to confirm with other lesions. So um, I, I felt kind of bad because I felt pretty sure I would have missed the diagnosis completely. So kudos to them for picking it up. But, you know, I, I think the point that you make, Amy, about, you know, other inflammatory dermatoses in the setting of some of these skin cancer patients can be extremely challenging. And I think the one in, that we see most commonly, like you said, are patients with psoriasis. And, you know, many of them back in the day got a lot of phototherapy. Right. You know, some of them got significant PUVA treatments. Now they've got a lot of, you know, skin cancers because of that. And sometimes trying to differentiate between the two can be extremely challenging, not only clinically, but also, you know, looking under the microscope. Yeah. Yeah. Alrighty, so moving on, our next article is entitled Locally Advanced Mucinous Carcinoma Treated with Mohs Surgery mm -hmm. by uh, Abigail Lewis and Dr. Rajiv Najawan out of UT Southwestern. So this article reviews the rare low-grade malignancy and uh, primary cutaneous mucinous carcinoma and the use of Mohs surgery for surgical removal, given the benefits of complete margin assessment as well as the tissue-sparing nature. They present a case of a 65-year-old uh, Fitzpatrick 5 skin type male with a uh, T3C primary cutaneous mucinous carcinoma tumor on his right eyelid who opted for Mohs surgery with a clearance after two stages and no evidence of recurrence after 17 months of clinical sur surveillance. Prior to surgery, there was a CT scan of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis, which, which did not show evidence of metastatic disease and confirmed that the tumor was primary in nature. So they then did a review of the literature, and there is uh, 411 cases of primary cutaneous mucinous carcinoma in the SEER database, and only 7% of those are, were treated with Mohs surgery, indicating this isn't really a widely accepted treatment modality for this tumor. 
Of 136 cases reported uh, to be treated with standard excision, there was a 34% local recurrence compared to 13% in those treated with Mohs surgery. Other small studies have also shown improvement in local recurrence with Mohs surgery, although again, these are small studies. Preoperative planning, I think, in, is paramount in these tumors. So uh, periocular tumors should be assessed for deep orbital invasion with both physical exam and preoperative imaging as deemed necessary. There should be a metastatic workup to confirm that this is primary cutaneous uh, mucinous carcinoma and not a metastatic mucinous carcinoma from either a breast or a colon origin. The authors mentioned this workup could include CT, PET scan, MRI, uh, mammography, a gynecologic exam, a GI endoscopy, a colonoscopy, and a regional lymph node evaluation uh, as deemed necessary with uh, the patient. So Dr. Brown, uh, these are rare tumors. You know, I don't, we don't come across them very often. When you do come across a primary cutaneous mus mucinous carcinoma, what's your typical workup? Uh, pretty much what you mentioned depends upon the location, but I think yeah. the first thing is you want to make sure that it's it is a primary tumor and it's not uh, potentially metastatic. I you know I've I've had that happen once to me, um, but the challenge with all of these rare tumors is that they're rare, and and you know even when you have a practice you know taking care of cutaneous on oncologic patients all the time, you're just not going to see very many of these, and the question comes down to you know when is most surgery helpful um, because the numbers are small. I guess my feeling is that if you feel that this is something that can still be easily visualized on a frozen section, you can still track it out with most surgery. I think if there's a challenge uh, of being able to read what you're looking at for any of these rare tumors, then maybe you need to think more about permanence. I, I think in this particular case, it's a pretty easy tumor to see on frozen sections. Um, we're also a little bit spoiled at our institution and in that our dermatopathologist is a dermatologist and she, you know, has her office just down the hallway so you can grab her whenever you need to have her look at some of these rare tumors. Um, and on occasion they'll say, yeah, you know, let's get a permanent just to make sure that we're not missing something there. Right. Um, but these, um, these rare tumors trying to figure out, you know, can I, do most surgery? Should I just have a wide local excision? You know, I, I think clearly here the recurrence rate is pretty high. You know, it's it was 13% with Mohs, but it was much worse for wide local excision. You know, it's probably twice as much for wide local excision. So even given small numbers, which you're always going to have small numbers for these rare tumors, if the Mohs technique looks like you're going to have, you know, 50% less recurrences, then it may be, you know, very worthwhile to do. Right. Alrighty, so our next article is entitled Skin Cancer as a Chronic Disease, a Retrospective Cohort Study Validating the Impact on Healthcare Utilization and Quality of Life by Catherine Plampton and Dr. Adam Sutton out of the University of Nebraska Medical Center. So as background, this group had previously proposed a reclassification system or a reclassification of individuals with greater than or equal to five keratinocytic carcinomas as meeting criteria for chronic disease. And this is due to the increased demands of both healthcare resources, as well as the negative impact on quality of life for these patients. 
So the aim of this retrospective cohort study was to validate these findings in a unique cohort in the Midwest and identify differences in geographically distinct original and the validation cohort. So the original cohort was recruited from Southern California and the validation cohort, as I said, was from the Midwest. So patients with greater than or equal to two lifetime keratinocytic carcinomas from the Mohs Clinic it, at the University of Nebraska were recruited, and then those with greater than or equal to five keratinocytic carcinomas were compared with the original cohort of 43. A total of 272 patients were enrolled, and 125 had greater than or equal to five keratinocytic carcinomas in this validation cohort. Patient characteristics can be seen in table one. Notably, the mean age was 72, 66% were male, and 22% were immunosuppressed. There was no statistically significant difference between the two cohorts in age, sex, race, ethnicity, or family history. The authors used the short form 20 health survey to assess quality of life, which can be seen in, in table two. The original cohort had a statistically lower score on the 20 item short form health survey and the physical subscore, indicating a greater negative quality of life related impact to this domain. The original cohort were also significantly more likely to be immunosuppressed. Other significant differences included time to diagnosis of first skin cancer. So it was 27 years in the original cohort and 21 years in the validation cohort. The number of skin cancers were significantly different. There was more in the original cohort. And the number of dermatology visits in the past year was also significantly more in the original, co in the original cohort. So this study did validate prior findings regarding healthcare utilization and the impact on, or especially the impact on quality of life. And you could see that with the short form 20 health survey, uh, except for the physical subscore, which was different, the rest of the scores were pretty comparable between the two cohorts. The original cohort has more skin cancers and dermatology visits and a greater impact on uh, quality of life specific to physical health. This discrepancy could be explained by geography. Uh, regardless, this group still advocates for patients with greater than or equal to five keratinocytic carcinomas to be considered a chronic disease, although they acknowledge that targeted prevention and, man and management strategies may differ on specific patient populations. So before I, I ask you your comments, Dr. Brown, I just want to make a brief comment on uh, treating these patients as having a chronic condition. And I really agree with that. And I want to add even patients that have this really high burden of actinic disease and actinic damage, um, especially when you're talking about how you're treating these patients. So oftentimes these patients think, you know, if I do this cream once, I'm never going to have to worry about it again. And I really talk to these patients like, you know, it's like high blood pressure. This is not something that's just going to go away. This is something that we're going to have to use a multimodality approach to treat. And that includes, you know, potentially oral chemo prevention, topical chemo prevention, surgeries. And it's not a one and done. This is something that we have to develop a regimen that we're going to be able to maintain long term. So I really talk to my patients like that, uh, because I think it's really important and it is something that we're going to be managing, uh, you know, for the rest of their lives. Uh, so Dr. Brown, what are your thoughts on, on this article and then just on these types of patients in general? Yeah. Well, first of all, your, your comments were excellent, Amy, and I agree with you hundred um, percent. 
you know, these patients have a chronic condition and it's going to be a lifetime condition. And actually, even with our intervention, as they age, it's probably going to get worse because, you know, they're going to just the just the fact that as they go from, you know, the age of 50 to the age of 80, um, even if they were to go live in a cave and never see the sun again, they're still going to have more burden of uh, disease that's going to show up. That's that's just a, a given. So absolutely, this is a chronic condition and it affects their quality of life. And um, I did have to read this article a couple of times. It was a little bit confusing as far as the points that they were trying to make. Um, I'm not I'm not sure um, how they specifically came up with, you know, five skin cancers being the definition of chronic disease. They said it was an expert group. Right. Um, because if you look at their populations, it was certainly more than that. You know, the original cohort, it was, you know, they had had an average of 30 skin cancers. The group in Nebraska was, you know, 11. So they were well over that that number of five. Um, and I'm not sure what the right number is. Uh, maybe there isn't a number. And like you said, um, besides just the skin cancers, what's the degree of actinic keratosis and actinic damage, nematoheliosis, and how does that affect their quality of life? And that's probably fairly significant. Um, you know, my um, lots of patients that you see um, three or four times a year, maybe you're controlling their skin cancers, but they're still getting a lot of ongoing treatments, you know, to control right. all this actinic damage that's there. Um, so, you know, I'm, um, I wasn't surprised that there's a little bit of a difference because it did seem like that original cohort group was a, you know, more significantly immunosuppressed group with more cancer. So I wasn't surprised that they had a little bit more um, physical quality of life issues that were going on. Right. Uh, so I, I think it's, I think it's a good article from the point of view of let's continue to talk about these patients having a chronic illness um, and the fact that they need really lifetime ongoing intervention with their dermatologist to make sure that we can help them improve their quality of life. Right. All righty. So the next article is entitled, How We Do It, Subsection Grossing for Partial to Full Thickness Sections of the Nasal ALA During Mohs Micrographic Surgery by Elizabeth Roa and Dr. Brian Carroll out of the Cleveland Medical Center. So this article describes the author's grossing te technique for difficult Mohs layers on the ALAR rim that maximizes tissue conservation while allowing for two-dimensional evaluation of complex nasal topography. They illustrate the technique with a patient example of a basal cell carcinoma extending into the nasal vestibule. The third layer along the ALAR rim was composed of two full thickness curves composed of epidermis, fibro, fibro fatty tissue, and mucosal epidermis with intervening area of partial thickness composed of fibro fatty tissue and mucosal epidermis. So I had a hard time kind of conceptualizing uh, their piece when I was reading it, but I do think the images are very helpful. So they took a piece of tissue right at the ALAR rim and both of the edges were essentially three layers. Um, and then the intervening area was that partial thickness that was just deeper tissue and mucosa. So to demonstrate different grossing techniques, one full thickness end was left connected to the intervening end and it was just pushed down in the same plane 
as the intervening tissue, and they called that the S formation, and you can see that in figure two. The other end was simply transected along the inflection point, and it was it created a smaller piece that had just a simple U curvature that was able to be laid down quite easily. And so the authors found that the simple U section obtained a complete epidermis sooner, while the S piece required deeper sectioning into the block, which increases processing time and also increases your chance of a false positive. Because if you don't have a complete margin, you need to section into the block until you get that. And if you become positive in that area, um, you're kind of forced to go back. The authors comment that when sectioning of complex layers like this, the sectioning should occur, if you're gonna section it, it should occur at the inflection point, which aids in tissue processing. So I think this is a good example of a relatively simple technique of processing that really may help in evaluation of these uh, tissues in really complex areas that have a lot of inflection points. When I think about that uh, in my mind, that's the ear, uh, that's the nose right around the nasal vestibule, which, you know, as myself as a young surgeon, I sometimes have a lot of challenge with, with uh, laying these so I'm able to see exactly the margins that I want to see. So, uh, Dr. Brown, uh, can you give a comment on this article? Sure. Uh, I, I thought it was interesting. I, I think the point it's important to realize here is that sometimes doing extra pieces is okay, um, especially in these challenging anatomic areas. And like you said, Amy, the ear is, I think, the classic area where you run into this all the time when you're trying to, you know, going from anterior to posterior or the different curves to the ear. And sometimes when you, the concept of trying to do a large piece trying to keep it all in one plane because that way you don't miss any potential tumor is, is a great concept, but sometimes it can be challenging for the reasons the author points out. So I think it makes perfectly good sense to say, okay, we're gonna take some smaller pieces to try to keep it um, a little bit easier so we don't have to go deeper into the tumor block and potentially get those false positives that you talked about. And we do this all the time. And I just tell my technician, I said, listen, I'm going to give you some smaller pieces. This is what I'm looking for. Here's the epidermis here. Here's the mucosa here. Um, so instead of having one piece, you've got three pieces. Right. A little bit more time for them to do it, but um, I think the accuracy is still very good. Great. All right, so our next article is uh, Timolol Effects on Surgical and Non-Surgical Wound Healing, a systematic review by Carolyn Wilkowski and Dr. Thomas Knaxted out of Case Western. So Timolol has been reported to aid in wound healing, although the specific mechanism has yet to be determined. To date, reports on its use in wound healing has yet to be reviewed and analyzed systematically, so this, this paper aimed to do that. A total of 19 articles describing Timolol use in 138 patients with 158 wounds were included. The most common wound was vascular at 50%, followed by uh, surgical wounds at 15%. Treatment characteristics and treatment outcomes can be seen in table one. Of note, 84% of the wounds were on the lower leg. Wounds were most often treated with Timolol drops in an area or a perimeter dependent fashion for an average of 66 days. 
So complete re-epithelialization occurred in 72% with an average time to re-epithelialization of 84 days of timolol treatment in 75 patients. 21 surgical wounds completely re-epithelialized after 55 days of treatment. No systemic adverse side effects were noted in 11 of the studies that included side effects. The limitations of this review is that most of the current literature on this subject is case reports, and so definitely uh, more robust prospective, prospective trials would be needed to kind of further explore the potential benefits of timolol and wound healing. It has a good safety profile, and the current evidence suggests it may accelerate healing, and I think it may be a reasonable uh, consideration in a certain subset of patients with these difficult wounds on the lower leg. I'll just say that lower leg wounds, I oftentimes counsel patients, especially if you know it's healing by second intent, that it can take 12 weeks to heal. And so looking at the some of the study times, it may you know decrease it a little bit. But I would expect lower leg healing to, to occur in two to three months. Uh, so it would be interesting to see with larger studies if this has a really positive impact. But I do, I do tell patients in this location that it is, it is a slow going process and that I give, you know, in my mind, um, compression therapy really helps to improve lower leg healing. And, you know, they didn't really make comments on additional things that were used in addition to Timolol. And so I do think there are other modalities that are helpful in, in expediting healing on the lower legs. Uh, but Dr. Brown, what are your comments on this article? Uh, first of all, I hate lower legs. If I was able to give up anything from my practice, I'd send all my lower legs somewhere else. Mm -hmm. um, the, but a lot of the patients are really nice to have lower leg problems. And we know we, no one likes to take care of these patients. You're absolutely right that 12 weeks of healing, that's, that's pretty good healing time, you know, and sometimes it's, you know, six months, depending upon the size of these defects, um, they can be very, very slow going. Um, I always tell the patients it's going to take forever, then probably a couple more days after that. Um, to get things to heal over. So when I read this, I thought, geez, anything that can help would be great. And I think the first thing that I'm going to do is actually touch base with our wound healing center, because they're the ones that take care of all these vascular lesions that just take forever. These venous ulcers take forever to heal, just to see if they have any knowledge about it and whether they're using it. Um, obviously, it's it's safe to use. There's no particular side effects. You put a couple of drops on the wound. And it looks like at least in some of the patients, they, you know, were able to get the healing time about a month quicker right. and, and a, a month can be fairly significant. So I think anything that can assist with the healing of these wounds would be helpful, but absolutely we need to have a prospective study. You know, you need to, um, and there's plenty of those patients out there. Wouldn't it be hard to do a prospective study, um, and I just, I've never, never used it, never tried it. I don't know anyone else who's tried it. This is the first I've come across it, but I think it's interesting because if it helps, that's great. Right. What do we, you, how do you manage your lower leg patients? So I, you know, I keep it fairly simple. 
Um, you know, and it depends upon the size of the wound. I, you know, if I can close something at least partially with a purse string closure, I'll do that. If it's a really large and deeper defect, sometimes on the lower legs, I just have to go ahead and put a skin graft on it. I'm not enthusiastic about it, but sometimes I just have to put a split graft just because it's so large. I know it's going to take forever to get that to heal over. But most of the smaller to mid-sized wounds will usually will let those granulate. Um, and like I said, I, I will... 90% of the time, try to purse string it first to try to get whatever movement when I can. And then I keep it fairly simple. I mean, I just tell them soap and water, um, Vaseline or Aquaphor, um, a nonstick bandage. Um, if they have underlying problems with some edema um, or they have some venous stasis problems, then I do talk to them about compression. Many of them already have compressor stockings. They just aren't using them because they right. hate to use them, you know. But I, I say, hey, this would really be helpful. So try to get some compression on there. Um, and then I just, you know, I'll see them once a month and try to keep them, you know, keep them in tune with the fact that, yeah, it's looking a little bit better. It's looking a little bit better. But they just have to know from the beginning that it's going to take a while for these to granulate in. Right. Do you ever give post-operative antibiotics and lower leg wounds? Good question. Um, you know, so here's the problem. Um, you're going to have several months of healing, so you can't put them on an antibiotic for several months. So does it really helpful? Is it helpful at the time that you do surgery to give them, you know, antibiotics that day or for a week? I don't think it really makes a huge difference. Um, the ones that seem to get infected, you know, most of the time if we have a wound infection, after most surgery reconstruction, you know, you know it at one week. They come right. in, take the sutures out, they got drainage. Like, okay, you got a wound infection. With these lower leg wounds, it might be two months out. You right. know, they show up with the wound infection. And then it gets difficult because when you do a culture, sometimes there's, you know, multiple organisms that are involved. You're trying to figure out which which one it is. So to answer your question, typically, no, I try not to put patients on an antibiotic because you know, the healing time is going to be months. And I right. just, I just feel uncomfortable keeping them on it for that length of time. Right. So we really work very hard on, on trying just to do local wound care. Now, um, I have at times given patients um, small bottles of chlorhexidine to take home um, prior to surgery. I tell them to use it for 48 hours before surgery. And then I sometimes will have them use chlorhexidine for the first several weeks after just to try to make sure that things are as clean as possible. Very interesting. Now for, let's say, lower leg wounds that you let granulate, what's your stance on getting it wet? And does it matter if it's a pool or a lake or what? How do you counsel your patients on, you know, doing activities they want to do? Yeah, I, you know, I try not to limit, you know, too much what they do. If, um, if they're going to be in a pool, you know, this time of the year when it's 90 degrees outside, they're going to be in a pool that's clean, chlorinated, fine. Right. If it's uh, lake water that's, you know, that we know is is um, a good lake. That's okay. So I just tell them, sure, go and get it wet when you come out, it's open water. Okay. Uh, up here, I tell them not to go, I tell them not to jump in the Erie Canal, which that's a mess, you know. Um, <laughs> so you have to pick your body of water carefully. I tell them, I, I do keep them out of hot tubs, though. Okay. Um, yeah, just I just think that much heat and that much uh, chlorine or bromine is is a little bit tough on the skin. So I do tell them, hey, let's get this healed over before we put you back in the hot tub. But I let them get a, I let them get it wet. I think it's actually I think it's actually good, you right. know, to make sure that they get some uh, get some cleansing from that. Excellent. All right.
Is that our last article? That is our that last is article. Our last article. We're having so yeah. much fun. I didn't realize it was. it was our last one. It was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time oh. to review these articles with me, Dr. Brown. Enjoyed it. Thank you very much. It was a lot of fun. We'll have to do it again. All right. This segment of the episode features general dermatologic surgery and cosmetic article reviews. This is Ardalan Minokadin, and I'm here today with Dr. Deirdre Hooper to review the cosmetic leaning manuscripts from the August 2023 edition of the journal Dermatologic Surgery. I will briefly summarize the manuscripts as a preview for the discussion with our guest, Dr. Hooper. Dr. Hooper, thank you so much for being our featured guest for this edition of the Derm Surgery Digest. Well, thank you so much for doing this with me. And, and I'm especially pleased to be doing it with you, Arderlan, since we go back to our New Orleans roots. And I'm excited to learn and discuss with you today. So let's get started. Excellent, good. We'll start with the first article, updating the Fitzpatrick classification, the skin, color, and ethnicity scale. The authors of this manuscript are Dr. Coleman, who is our esteemed editor-in-chief, Kavita Mariwala and Pearl Grimes, all thought leaders and key opinion leaders in our field. And the premise for this manuscript was that there's been an increase in submissions to journals, including ours, under the classification skin of color. U.S. Census data indicates that the portion of our population considered skin of color is increasing, and actually by 2050, the majority of our population will be skin of color. As we know, different diseases, specifically the presentation, morbidity and mortality may present differently in different populations and classification can be difficult. The authors argue that our current classification, the Fitzpatrick skin phototype scale, which I'll review shortly, falls short of this, of giving a good classification. Uh, the authors also cite an article from the late 1970s with the lead author, Dr. Coleman, that studied the distribution of nevi and melanoma in, quote, black patients with a wide range of skin color, showing that lighter skinned subjects had a higher risk of total body nevi and melanoma, whereas darker skinned subjects had far fewer nevi and a higher risk of palmar and plantar melanoma. They did highlight that the correlation of skin cancer risk in individuals with fair skin has now become well-established. Furthermore, they argue or ask the question, do we consider patients who share a genetic or cultural background as the same skin type? We know there's a range of melanin pigment that can exist within a group, so it may be inaccurate. And the authors beautifully highlight this in figure one, which shows two individuals who are first degree cousins who identify as primarily South Asian, but their skin phototypes are actually markedly different. So the goal was that the authors state that we need to update the current skin phototype grading system to properly assess risk when performing procedures and when we're looking to classify groups for study outcomes. I can briefly discuss the Fitzpatrick skin phototype classification, which we use now, which many of us are familiar with, was developed in 1975, and I'm quoting the authors here, was used to demonstrate the correlation of skin cancer and skin color and to assess an individual's susceptibility to sunburning and to calculate the initial doses for phototherapy. 
Now the scale has become synonymous with skin classifications of race and ethnicity. And this really was not the intended use. And ultimately, the when making a cohort of patients, physicians are more accurate in stratifying subjects by Fitzpatrick type than patients who self-identify, which has been shown to be inaccurate. The authors also highlight that recently the Fitzpatrick scale has been criticized as flawed, especially with skin types four and five. And several modifications have been proposed to the Fitzpatrick scale to better incorporate darker skin types, but none have really been comprehensive enough for the author, for authors and researchers to widely adopt them. So ultimately the Fitzpatrick scale, the original one has imperfections and is, does not do an accurate job to differentiate and define patients with different skin color. So what did the authors do? They proposed an updated skin color scale, which is shown in table two. They state that the scale more clearly demonstrates the ratings of various skin types. And they also gave an appendix of directed clinical questions to better subdivide patient groups. The way that they did this was combining their expertise with PubMed and M-based reviews, uh, looking at skin of color scales, and also did an extensive internet search using makeup foundation ranges as a starting point for skin tone matching. They discussed with other skin of color experts and reached a consensus that Fitzpatrick types four and five were the most confusing. And they ultimately subdivided these skin types into A and B categories to better define them. The new scale that they made, which is described in table two, is known as the skin color ethnicity scale. In the verbiage of table two, you can read that they added freckling, pore size, and other parameters for easier use. And ranges of photographs actually taken from cosmetic, a specific cosmetic company who uses images for makeup color matching. They use those pictures to actually create the image component of the scale. And uh, figure two shows the visual component of the scale. And figure three, there's a range of skin colors and genders, as you can see in the image, that were rated using the new scale. So ultimately, problem the authors state was that we needed a consistent, better, more accurate way to classify patients who fall within the boundaries of skin and color. The authors hope that this new updated scale will be adopted in large databases like the SEER database in the U.S. Census, and they are currently working on validating this scale. Dr. Hooper, as someone who is a key opinion leader and thought leader in our field, performs clinical trials and sees patients in a city with a diverse population, namely New Orleans, Louisiana, do you find that the current Fitzpatrick scale is limiting and do you support or see the need for this modified scale? Well, thank you. That was such a good summary of, of a really important and complex topic. And I really applaud Drs. Coleman and Grimes and Mary Walla for helping us move forward on this because yes, in some ways you use the word imperfect. And I think that's a imperfect word because in some ways the Fitzpatrick scale is limiting because it's limiting in predicting scarring, aging, and hyperpigmentation, because it wasn't designed to do that, right? And it's really, as they point out well, in those Fitzpatrick four and five types. And I do clinical trials, cosmetic clinical trials, but also day-to-day, -day, I was thinking about it, and almost every day I see just about every Fitzpatrick skin type in my practice. And what I really want to be able to do is to predict what procedures I should recommend as effective, 
and what procedures I should recommend as safe. And so that's what the authors have done here, um, ultimately de recommending dividing four and five into A and B types. My big takeaway, Ardalan, is I really noticed in table two that they used colorimetry. So colorimetry is measuring the melanin index with a spectrophotometer. And right now that's not something that we can quickly and easily do, but that would be great. And it shows you where the Fitzpatrick is, is very helpful because with the exception of one category, it's quite linear. So Fitzpatrick skin types one, score zero to 100, type two, 100 to 150, type three, 150 to 250. And you can start feeling that that's a really nice objective delineator of skin type. Now where it becomes a little interesting is skin type four. The, it goes everywhere from 50 to 400. So skin type four colors overlap one, two, three, four, and five. And so I would be really interested going forward to see if there's a way that we could easily measure colorimetry and track to see if that's a simple thing you could do almost like a vital sign when someone shows up into your clinic, what's your colorimetry score and how can we use that to predict your aging, your scarring, your hyperpigmentation and your skin cancer risk. So I think that would be really cool. And I do support a modified scale so that we can create better data sets. And so I'm, I'm excited about this work and I'm, I'm really excited. I wanted to bring up one other thing that I wanted to ask you about that you touched on is, you know, they're doing a lot of work to help us improve dialogue because this article issues misleading terms and these misleading terms are getting everywhere. They're in the public domain. My patients are talking about them. I see them in scientific publications, terms like melanated skin or skin of color and that can be confusing, right? Because if you're the average person, then maybe you wonder who has melanin and who doesn't and who has color and who doesn't. So I think bringing this um, descriptive term where we don't use something like the word Asian, which is like half the world, right? And as every color of skin. And so I think that this is not accurately classifying multi-hued and diverse ethnic groups. And I think Absolutely, from a trial and predicting risk and benefit, this is important, but also as a way to accurately describe skin color and type in a reproducible and consistent way, I, I, I think is a, is a really important piece that we can take away from this article as well. I think that's gr a great point, Dr. Hooper. You're right. The words, words matter and the terms and defining our terms is really important because ultimately patient outcomes are affected. Yeah. Thank you so much. So we'll move on to the next manuscript, which is Evaluation of Public Interest on Genital Aesthetic Procedures in Women Using Google Trends. And this manuscript comes from our colleagues in Istanbul, Turkey. The premise of this manuscript was that genital aesthetic treatments are increasing in popularity, specifically to improve not only aesthetic appearance, but also function. And the authors wanted to clarify the public interest in genital aesthetic procedures among women between the years 2004 and 2022. They state that many patients search online, whether it's Facebook, Google, Instagram, or Twitter, out of embarrassment or shame for more information instead of going to a doctor first. So other, other studies that the authors cite looked at public interest in these different aesthetic procedures, but none specifically focused on genital aesthetic procedures. In their methods, they mentioned that 90% of patients use Google. So they used an application called Google Trends, which is a way that Google provides information about how often a word is searched, 
in which country, in which region. 12 terms were searched that our readers can look at in the manuscript, including uh, vaginoplasty, labioplasty, laser, vaginal rejuvenation. 12 terms were searched. Um, and they look to see between January 1st, 2004 and January 1st, 2022, they looked at different six-year periods to see what the trends were. Table one highlights the results. The big take home was that public interest in specifically vaginal tightening and labioplasty cost significantly increased over the time of the study. Figure one showed country differentiations to see what countries search different terms. Labioplasty was commonly searched in India, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and South Africa between 2004 and 2010, and Australia, Brazil, Egypt, Turkey, North America, and European countries between 2010 and 2016. Uh, overall, public attention to labioplasty and hymenoplasty was significantly higher in 2010 to 2016 then as compared with 2004 to 2010 and 2016 to 2022, the vaginal laser term was researched the most between 2016 and 2022. And then it was mentioning that uh, specific terms were researched significantly less, including the laser vaginal rejuvenation, rejuvenation and labia cosmetic surgery. They did cite their limitations that they only searched English terms, didn't look at patient symptoms or complaints, and really only limited it to keywords mentioned. And they didn't look to see if there was a correlation between Google trend results and the number of procedures performed. Uh, Dr. Hooper, do you have any thoughts on this manuscript and the time since you've been in practice? Have you also seen uh, or seen this mirror trend between uh, increases in genital aesthetics for women? I was really happy to read this article and it was helpful to me because I think when you're in private practice and I've been in private practice for a very long time, you you end up, you can only cover so many things, right? As you start out in Durham that you have the dreaded list and there's so many things that people can ask about. And so I have not seen a huge increase in people asking me about genital aesthetic procedures. Here and there it comes up. And when I read this article, I think I understand more why. It's probably because I don't offer these procedures and I'm not advertising information regarding these procedures. And the authors make this great point that this is sort of very private, right? And so very influenced by doing your own research and researching your real life and your online communities. And then you're going to talk to your treating physicians. And so what I would take away from this article is if you're offering this procedure or considering offering, offering these procedures, which are effective procedures and we have safe, safe products and safe techniques, you need to realize what terms are searched so that you can make sure that you're putting that out there to your patients. And a pearl from a business perspective is price is a big deal in this one. And so maybe you share prices and maybe you don't, but if you're offering genital aesthetic procedures, you may need to understand that a big gateway here is the price. And so sharing that might save you some trouble if it's out of the price range of what your patients want to do. So um, I think if you're offering or considering offering genital aesthetic procedures, you should definitely review this nicely written article. Excellent. Thank you for your thoughts, Dr. Hooper. Next, we have plasma lipid analysis of simultaneous application of RF synchronized with HIFEM for fat reduction in same day, multiple sessions. 
This manuscript is from Dr. Robert or Bob Weiss. I'd like to highlight that Dr. Weiss is an ASDS Dermatologic Surgery Fellowship Director. Uh, the premise is that we have about five modalities that are FDA approved for non-invasive body contouring. I'll quote Dr. Weiss's article saying that synchronized RF combined simultaneously with IFEM can effectively achieve fat reduction and muscle strengthening since both fat and muscle thickness are affected and both substantially contribute to overall body appearance. And the combined technologies have been shown to be safe and effective on multiple body parts. We know part of the mechanism of how this works is apoptosis or programmed cell death of the fat cells. And he sought to document the safety of consecutive use of these combined technologies, especially on multiple body parts in the same day, because this treatment involves death of those fat cells. He monitored serum liver enzymes and lipid concentration. Uh, he has great images in figure three and four that this modality works. You can see in a figure three, a 29-year-old woman, and in figure four, a 59-year-old man who has a progression of reduced abdominal fat. Uh, the methods in this manuscript specifically are that there were 10 patients, eight women and two men, who had four 30-minute consecutive HIFEM plus RF procedures. Uh, liver functioning was performed. You can see the results in table one. He measured AST, ALT, GGT, ALP, and a lipid profile. Uh, subject satisfaction was also measured. Uh, the results basically are that the average values and results were all within normal limits. There were no significant fluctuations or notable deviations in the measured blood parameters. So in short, the plasma levels and lipids and liver functions were all safe and when within normal limits. And as an added bonus, the patients really did seem to have a visible aesthetic improvement with high satisfaction. Dr. Hooper, are you surprised by these results? And I'm curious, as you have patients who I'm sure come in for fat reduction procedures, whether it's cool sculpting, Kybella, or other treatments, do you have patients bring up a concern for lipid levels or kind of where does the fat go kind of question? Yeah, um, I think I'm so happy to, to have this paper. People ask me all the time, where does the fat go? And I say, you excrete it. But rarely and never has someone asked me, what is my blood level? What's going to happen to my lipids? And I really honestly hadn't thought about it that deeply. And, you know, having the science-based understanding of risk is crucial. And we're going to be talking in this podcast about physicians and non-physicians. And I think physicians distinguish ourselves. Of course, we're thought leaders. We lead in diagnosis. We lead in treatment. And we lead in managing risk and benefit. And so Dr. Weiss having this critical thinking is so helpful to me because, let me tell you, if I have a body contouring patient who says to me, Dr. Hooper, I've got a lipid abnormality. Do you think this has anything to do with my body contouring procedure? I'm going to be very grateful for having this study that's confirming the safety of multiple sessions of, of this, this effective procedure that's being done more and more. So um, super happy to have this article in our safety armamentarian. Agreed. That's a great insight. Thank you, Dr. Hooper. We'll move on next to the article, Comparative Study Between CO2 Laser Intralesional Vitamin D3 and Combined Intralesional Vitamin D3 and CO2 Laser in Treatment of Palmore Plants for Awards. This manuscript comes from our colleagues from the Dermatology Department at Cairo University in Giza, Egypt. The background of this is that as many 
of us as dermatologists know, many therapeutic modalities are used for palmar plantar warts, whether it's destructive, cautery, electrocautery, laser ablation, and we're trying to target the immune system and stimulate it again and to target and kill the virus. And they specifically look at intralesional vitamin D3 injection. So the objective was to compare the efficacy of intralesional vitamin D combined with CO2 laser to compare and see if the combined efficacy is greater than or better or different than either modality alone. They took 86 age and sex match patients. The demographic data is listed in table one. And, and those individuals had the warts and there were four groups divided. Uh, the, the patients were divided into four groups. Group A had intralesional vitamin D. Specifically, they were injected with 0.2 milliliters of lidocaine at a 20 milligram per milliliter concentration, followed by 0.2 milliliters of vitamin D3, which was at 300,000 international units per milliliter as a concentration. Group B received the ablative CO2 laser. Group C received both. And then group D had normal saline injected. The results ultimately showed that complete clearance was seen in 90% of the cases in group C, which is again, the ones that had the combined treatment. There's a patient shown in figure three who had this. 80% of the 80% clearance happened in group A, which is just vitamin D3. And again, representative patients shown in figure one. And then group B who just had the CO2 laser had a 75% clearance and the representative patients shown in figure two. There was ultimately no statistically significant difference. And the authors conclude based on this evidence that intralesional vitamin D3 may be a better option for people with a relative contraindication to CO2 laser. So maybe you don't really need the laser and you can just do this with vitamin D. I personally, a question for Dr. Hooper, I personally have not ever tried vitamin D injections into warts and really don't use CO2 laser either. Dr. Hooper, do you have experience with this? And if not, does this manuscript prompt you to consider this treatment for any recalcitrant warts? Yeah, well, definitely. And I, I'm similar to you. I, I don't use these two modalities for warts, but as we all know, warts are, are maddening and and lots of things might work. And what is makes this study compelling to me is two things. Is one, they they had great results. And so they they're adding to our therapeutic armamentarian and certainly injecting anything seems to sort of stimulate your an immune response. And so vitamin D sounds like a pretty effective and, and not super expensive option. If you I would point out that if you use CO2 laser, which they did get some good outcomes with, you would want to be sure to have proper smoke evacuation precautions because you certainly don't want to inhale HPV. Um, on a practical level, my big advice, I guess, as a person who's treated warts for a long, long time is this confirms what I see in my practice is that doing something on a regular basis for warts does tend to work. And in general, when you look at their demographics is mirrors what I see is that interventions work better, not just for warts, but for many things in younger patients and earlier in disease. So just making sure that you, if your patients are complaining of these problems, you, you get that out in the open and get it started right away. So, yeah. Excellent. Thank you for that. The next manuscript is creation and validation of a photonumeric scale for assessment of infraorbital hollows. The premise of this manuscript is that there's a key role 
that we are, as aesthetic dermatologists, are aware that the periorbital area plays as a key role in facial aesthetics here. We need ways to assess improvement after treatment in this area, and there are several validated clinical scales that can be used to assess aesthetic improvement of the infraorbital hollows, and the authors wanted to make uh, another one to look at. The goal was to develop an infraorbital hollow scale and establish reliability and sensitivity so that this could be used for grading subjects either in routine practice or ideally for clinical trials. I'd like to highlight figure one that does describe several terms that can be confusing in the area, specifically the infraorbital hollow, the tear trough, and the palpebromalar groove. And the methods, uh, the authors do describe the method of scale development, which is relatively standard. Our readers can read it in the methods section, but in short, they developed the scale based on real subject photographs and validated it with both photographic and live subject evaluation. They termed the scale the Tioxane infraorbital hollow scale. The scale is nicely shown in figure two, which is a five point scale. And ultimately the evidence about whether or not this was consistent and validated was through clinician intra and inter-rater assessments. And they showed that the Kappa score, which showed whether or not this was reliable between the two sessions of photographic validation was 0.92 or high. And the inter-rater inter-class correlation coefficient or ICC was uh, 0.92 as well. The average intra-rater weighted Kappa score and inter-rater ICC for the live validation reached 0.8 and 0.76 respectively. And it looked like the evaluators were able to identify a clinically significant difference between photograph of subjects presenting a one grade or two grade difference in 82 and 86% of cases respectively. So they conclude that the Tioxane infraorbital hollow scale is repeatable, reproducible for clinician reported outcome for healthcare providers to classify the hollows, the infraorbital hollows in routine patient care and clinical trials, and that a one grade difference on the scale was clin clinically meaningful. They did highlight that there are other scales and they mentioned that they're, the one that they present here has a more simplified version because they have two photos per grade as opposed to three in others. Dr. Hooper, we're at the time when now we have the new FDA approval of Restel and Eyelite and previous approval of Juvederm Volbella in the tear trough, which has renewed interest for physicians and patients. Do you have any thoughts about the scale versus other, others that are available? And are there specific things you look for when reviewing scales? Yeah, well, I'm sort of, of of two minds or two two minds here. You know, one is I do clinical trials and it's it's so important to have a clear scale to get FDA approval for these devices. And so my first thought is from a clinical trial and industry point, you know, industry is obviously very motivated to get these scales done so that they can ultimately bring a new indication to market and whether they do a four or a five point scale, ultimately it's going to be a business decision. And this way they can train people and advertise on their product being FDA approved for this particular area. So as far as scales four versus five, I think it's just important for listeners to know that um, as we have more 
companies having products approved for intraorbital hollows. Some are using four-point scales. Some are using five-point scales. So that makes it a little more difficult to um, compare studies. I like a five-point scale. I like subtle results. I think tear troughs are an area where things can go wrong very easily. And understanding the aesthetics of subtle results to me is very important. So I appreciate the five-point scale. From a day-to-day -day private practitioner and a trainer of residents and early injectors, what I like about these scales is they become a very objective way to define to define what patient is a candidate because it become it's a little overwhelming when you're starting out injecting knowing is this a patient that has dark circles because of hyperpigmentation or dark circles because of hollowing and that's really important for good natural outcomes. So I think what I would take away as that earlier novice injector is really take advantage of what these companies are creating and defining the anatomy so you can identify who has an infraorbital hollow and who would benefit from treatment. And also this is going to allow a great path for training for residents and beginner injectors. So that is I am happy to see these more indications coming, but we all need to understand that as more indications come, there will probably be more people injecting and more complications. Those are great points. Thank you so much. The next manuscript is Incidence and Clinical Impact of Endovenous Glue-Induced Hypersensitivity Among Patients Who Underwent Endovenous Cyanoacrylate Ablation Procedures, a Registry-Based Cohort Study. And this is from our colleagues at the Jeju Sioux Cardiovascular Center in Jeju, the Republic of Korea. The premise is that endovenous procedures on incompetent veins are gaining popularity because of how safe they are, effective, and how feasible they are in terms of the procedure itself. The authors describe this cyanoacrylate glue ablation using something called venous seal, which is a synthetic glue which uses, uses a non-tumescent and non-thermal method. The details of the procedure are listed on page 784 for review, but in short, the benefits or advantage of this technique is that it's there's lower procedure-related pain, shorter procedure time, and acceptable closure rate of those target veins. And previous studies show that this cyanoacrylate glue ablation gives a comparable or superior effectiveness and outcomes over tumescent-based endothermal technique. But there are adverse skin reactions that have come about as an issue after this. And that's the main point of the manuscript. They describe it as the phlebitis-like abnormal reaction, which includes itching, a skin rash, tenderness, painful swelling, and heat. Some believe it's a self-limiting type of type four hypersensitivity reaction with an incidence rate of 11.4 to 25.4%. But they looked at histology and actually showed that the treated venous walls and perivascular space had chronic granulomatous vasculitis type findings, unlike phlebitis, uh, which with phlebitis, we know that it's caused by inflammation related to intravascular um, thrombi. So um, given this, the authors state that the adverse skin reaction can't just be considered a complex series of immuno, immunologic hypersensitivity reactions. And they sought to characterize these adverse skin events in what they believe to be a spectrum of EGIH or endovenous glue induced hypersensitivity. This is actually a prospective study. They made a registry of patients that were gonna have this type of ablation 
They had 335 limbs from 173 patients who underwent this procedure in a cohort study. Table one in the manuscript shows those clinical manifestations and the incidence and duration was shown in figure one. All appear to have this type of reaction within the five post-operative weeks. Itching was the most common symptom when analyzed by limb. The ultimate EGIH was observed in 55 patients or 31.8%. And beyond the target vein, those systemic side effects were noted in 5.8% of the treated patients after the ablation, some reporting even eyeball swelling and lip itch. The onset, the median onset was at 13 post-operative days. The mean duration was seven days, but over 10% had symptoms lasting longer than four weeks. And this cohort study showed an incidence higher than previously reported studies. Table two shows patient recorded outcomes, and it seems that in those patients that had the EGIH compared with those who did not, there were significant improvements in the venous clinical severity score and the chronic venous insufficiency quality of life questionnaire uh, observed uh, at three months postoperatively. So development of the EGIH didn't affect the postoperative patient uh, reported satisfaction scores. They conclude and say that the incidence of EGIH under real clinical conditions is not negligible. Although some side effects were significant, it ultimately didn't affect the clinical outcome. The results of the study seem to show that there's a mixed nature of hypersensitivity reactions. And the authors suggest that detailed information on how this forms and optimally defining EGIH is needed so that appropriate preventive and therapeutic methods can be developed. Uh, Dr. Hooper, I personally don't perform this procedure and refer such venous procedures out. I was not aware of the high incidence of symptomatic EGIH. What is your experience with this? And would the incidence discourage you from recommending this procedure over a tumescent-based endothermal technique? Well, I actually wasn't even familiar with this procedure. And I reached out to Dr. Vineet Mishra in preparation for this call. And we and we talked about it. And it's certainly a procedure that, that's being done. And as far as recommending the procedure, I'm going to use my excellent colleagues who I refer to to determine whether this is the right option for patients. But it's certainly being done. And I can imagine that in, injecting glue would cause some inflammation. And I, I thought this was a really well-designed study because they really did a deep dive and paid attention to adverse events and the incidence of hypersensitivity of almost one in three is high and patient satisfaction was high. So if you've got a procedure that has high patient satisfaction, but there are a lot of hypersensitivity reactions, I would expect us as dermatologists are going to be consulted in some cases even if we're not performing those procedures. And I think it's good for us to know that 50% of the cases did resolve in a week, but 20% were considered severe and 20% was, were generalized. So my two takeaways from this paper is, number one, this is a reaction we should know about. It can be localized or generalized. Severe cases may require systemic steroids or even resection. And early diagnosis and treatment is important. So our awareness is, is, is crucial. And then number two is that patient satisfaction was high. So even if you aren't doing endovenous procedures, I just think my takeaway would be, as I did in this case, know your referring physicians and have phone numbers and be be in good communication so that a good relationship when adverse events happen is available. 
Those are great takeaways, Dr. Hooper. Thank you. We really are in a medical community. We're not just independent physicians on our own. Uh, it, okay, so Ardalan, we are yes. out of time. Yes. So I'm going to do a second one. Okay, awesome. Thanks. Call you back. Okay. All right. Bye. And, and you're able. The next manuscript is treatment of acquired digital arteriovenous malformation with intralesional bleomycin, an effective modality for a lesser known condition. This manuscript is from our colleagues at the Departments of Dermatology and Pathology in New Delhi, India. Now, acquired digital AV malformation, which they abbreviate as ADAVM, is rare and undiagnosed. It can occur spontaneously or after trauma. Figures one and three of the manuscript show the condition at the tip of the finger of a 45 and 51-year-old woman, respectively. Treatment, the authors describe, is usually surgical excision and has been shown to be the ideal treatment modality based on limited reports. But the authors state that the role of sclerotherapy has not been explored and they present three cases of ADAVM successfully treated with intralesional bleomycin sclerotherapy. Table one shows the, uh, describes the details of the patients, and figures two and four show the after photo from the baselines shown in figure one and three. It looks like they inject bleomycin at a concentration of one to 1 1.5 units of, per milliliter into lesions at two weekly intervals, one patient actually had clearance after one session and the other two needed three treatments. The authors described no adverse, event, no adverse events and there was no recurrence reported by the greater than six month follow-up. What's unique here, according to the authors, that uh, a single case report in the past was written describing STS sclerotherapy in a case of ADABM, but the complete um, removal required 12 sittings. And this was also associated with significant pain in that, in that report. But the author's technique shows complete clearance in one to three settings with no pain, no adverse events. And they mentioned that bleomycin is safer with minical, minimal local and systemic adverse events. So the authors do admit this is a rare condition. Uh, Dr. Hooper, can we get your thoughts on this interesting case series? Yeah, so bleomycin, I, I didn't really think of it in my mind as a sclerosin. It, it induces endothelial damage, so it makes sense as an option for these acquired arteriovenous malformations. So I appreciate learning um, this, this interesting technique and diagnosis, and I would encourage, as you did, listeners to take a look at the images to help you with diagnosis, and I would just, I use bleomycin to treat Veruca, and I use dilute doses, um, one to 1.5 units per ml. Be sure you obtain informed consent because we've seen nail dystrophy and Raynaud's with bleomycin. But personally, I've had good results with bleo in the treatment of warts. It's simple and inexpensive. And I would think it's a good alternative to excision for this condition. Those are great points. Thank you. And the intralesional bleomycin also brings us back to that previous manuscript about, about warts. Uh, the next manuscript is Skin of Color Representation in Laser Therapy-Based Clinical Trials from our colleagues at Duke University in their Department of Dermatology. Here, we return to the topic of skin of color we described earlier, and the author sought to study the inclusion of patients considered to be skin of color within laser-based clinical trials. In terms of methods, they search clinicaltrials.gov 
for the terms laser, dermatology, and skin for trials from January 1st, 2008 to November 1st, 2022. They looked at dermatologic conditions in which specifically what specific lasers were used and the Fitzpatrick skin type of participants within the trial. Their results show that there were 189 laser-based clinical trials for dermatologic conditions in America with 61 of those 189 uh, completed with public results. 27.87% or 17 of the 61 categorized demographics of their participants by Fitzpatrick skin type. And within these 17 trials, uh, 359 out of the 1,010 or 35 0.54% of the participants were differentiated by Fitzpatrick skin type. 11 different dermatologic conditions were targets for laser therapy and 10 different lasers were used within those 17 clinical trials. Table one shows the Fitzpatrick skin type of participants and that they varied according to condition, which condition was being treated and did show the laser being used. They find that most participants in clinical trials were identified as Fitzpatrick type 3, and only 22.14% of the trial participants were identified as either Fitzpatrick type 4, 5, or 6, which we know are those, the Fitzpatrick skin types that often represent patients with skin of color. So they conclude and show that Skin of color participants are minimally represented in laser-based clinical trials. They do admit that some conditions treated with laser therapy that are common in patients with skin of color were not included in this analysis because clinical trials for those conditions did not meet inclusion criteria for this study, specifically that they didn't report patient demographics. And they further this and say that as clinical trials are conducted and devices are developed, there's a lack of efficacy and safety data for patients with skin of color. So consequently, laser-based treatment may be offered without a full understanding of the associated risks or even not offered at all to patients who may benefit. Dr. Hooper, I know you touched on this earlier, but we know skin of color is a hot topic in our field and some clinical trials for dermal fillers that you referenced earlier are actually now mandating inclusion of patients with higher Fitzpatrick skin type scores. Based on this manuscript, do you think similar mandates should be enforced for laser trials? And are you surprised by the lack of representation of skin of color in laser-based trials? So this is, I think, the rare incidents where, where regulation and government is actually super helpful because, you know, these filler trials, you're, you're required to enroll a range of skin types, which I think is very important. And in laser trials, that's probably one of the most important areas in dermatology to mandate this inclusion of all skin types. So I think it, you can tell from this paper, it's, it's sort of hard to sift through what data is available and what data is relevant and clinically significant, but it really brings to light, like we need to do this because think about all the things we're doing with lasers. Think about Matt Avram's paper that's showing us that the fractional lasers are helping decrease skin cancer risk. Think about choosing devices that can help your patients in terms of their risk of aging or skin cancer or hyperpigmentation. And so predicting, number one, of course, efficacy, but number two, of course, safety is, is crucial. So yes, I think that we should really work as a society to guide 
representation of all skin types and in the best possible way, as we talked about earlier in this podcast, uh, so that we can really get great results and predictable results and safety. So I'm, I'm a fan and I think we have some work to do here. Excellent. Agreed. The next manuscript is Cosmetic Laser Training in Residency, Results of a Survey of Dermatology Residents. And this is from our colleagues in Alabama and Arizona. The premise is that the demand for cosmetic procedures, including laser procedures, is increasing and that dermatologists need to be well-trained in this area. And they also state that laser education received during residency training may be insufficient based on reported plans for residents to incorporate lasers into clinical practice after they graduate. So the authors wanted to characterize cosmetic laser education and assess the perceived competency and future practice plans among residents. This was a survey study sent through the listserv of the Association of Professors of Dermatology. There were 26 items in the survey, 79 residents answered. Figure one summarizes the residents' perceptions regarding the adequacy of their cosmetic laser training. If you can look at figure one, a majority actually said that they had performed an insufficient number of laser procedures during training. Figure two looks at self-assessed competency and anticipated future use. Most residents reported understanding the risks of the procedures, but more than half stated or did not agree that they were comfortable with it. Uh, and despite not feeling prepared, most indicated that they plan to use lasers after residency. Residency programs um, and national associations, according to the authors, should periodically assess and modify laser curricula to ensure that our future dermatologists are fully prepared. And the authors also encourage future studies looking at the experiences of early career dermatologists who may offer further insight into the quality of laser training and dermatology residency. And Dr. Hooper, this is for me a full circle moment since you were my faculty as a resident, uh, as a faculty at Tulane and LSU, do you find that the results in this study are representative of the residents that you work with? Absolutely. And, and you were one of my absolute favorite residents, um, Ardalan, always. And I'm so I was happy talking today to a couple of my chief residents at LSU and Tulane, and and they they totally agreed. You know, they we've got laser clinics, and they're able to have access to hands-on laser, and they do get didactic training, but not as much as they want. You know, and I think my residents would agree that more hands-on training and access to multiple devices is always welcome. And I'm really glad to see in the study that a majority of residents are receiving formal didactic training because ASDS is, is a leader here at maintaining our status in, in understanding laser therapies. And the problem, of course, is lasers are expensive to purchase and maintain, and the technology changes frequently. So we have to balance what's realistic and what's too costly as we budget time and money resources. So Yes, residents, we hear you. We want you to learn. We want you to have access. And I really hope that you will join the ASDS, stay active in the ASDS, and take advantage of learning opportunities, mentorship, webinars, and in-person meetings, because it is overwhelming, the number of devices that are coming in constantly. So learn the laser basics um, in residency. I think that's super important. Get all the experience you can and then take advantage of learning opportunities as you move forward, because I think dermatologists are the leaders here and will remain the leaders. 
Thank you, Dr. Hooper. I absolutely agree. If I can put in another plug for the ASDS, who provides so many amazing uh, training opportunities for residents. Uh, the next manuscript is Trends and Distribution of Dermatologic Procedures Performed by Dermatology Non-Physician Clinicians in the Medicare Population from 2015 to 2019. This is from our colleagues at the Departments of Dermatology at the Geisinger Medical Center in Pennsylvania and the University of Connecticut. To def uh, the premise of this manuscript is that non-physician clinicians, which they termed NPCs, have expanded their presence within dermatology, as I'm sure we've all noticed. The author sought to take some objective data from Medicare Part B from those years, 2015 to 2019, to better identify and trend dermatologic procedural services performed by these non-physician clinicians. They looked at the procedures independently billed by dermatologists as compared with the non-physician uh, clinicians. The results shown in table one and actually some supplemental digital content available on our journal website. Um, the procedural volume ratio between NPCs to dermatologists was 0.27, but it was greater in non-metro uh, counties at the ratio of 0.49 and low income counties as well, at ratio of 0.34, small single specialty groups at a ratio of 0.36 and counties with less than two dermatologists per 100,000 individuals in terms of population at a ratio of 0.55. They looked at procedures over time and noticed that the number of procedures performed by NPCs increased by 14.6% annually whereas it was 0.1% for dermatologists, and that the high growth rate appeared to really happen for many complex procedures as well, like wound repairs, injections, malignant and malignant excisions. And in terms of their discussion, the authors highlight that the dermatology NPCs are performing a disproportionate number of procedures in non-metro and low-income counties, and those with dermatologist shortages, Although the NPC presence in these areas may increase access, they do highlight that some things haven't been characterized, including procedural outcome, differences between NPCs and dermatologists. So far, studies show lower biopsy sensitivity rates and potential greater adverse events from cosmetic procedures by NPCs, and they cite references with this. And the reason for differing NPC procedural volume by practice setting can't be fully elucidated, but should motivate better characterization of practical didactic and instructive training opportunities in both groups, the authors state that. They do highlight certain limitations of the manuscript, indicating that Medicare trends, although good objective data may not reflect the broader patient population. They state this is a descriptive analysis and really can't assess patient outcomes, and that studies are needed to describe the effect of rapid growth in NPC procedures on dermatology patient outcomes to better inform training initiatives and practice guidelines. Dr. Hooper, the role of non-physician clinicians is another hot topic in our field. What is your takeaway or what are your takeaway home take home points after reviewing this article? Well, you did a really good job summarizing it and, and the author sharing it with us. And I, I think my comment is we all know this is a big issue and we all know it, it's a complex issue. And my comment that I would add is that we need to be thinking about what does this mean for our specialty three, five, 10 years from now, and all staying involved and communicating and it, 
if you are not following ASDS members and ASDS SkinMD and ASDS advocacy, you should definitely be doing that because it can feel a bit overwhelming. But I do believe there will always be a place for those of us with the highest credentials of training and expertise. I mean, just in this podcast, we're talking about practice changing implications of how we talk about skin color and how we treat with lasers. And so I think a high, I know a high priority for ASDS leadership is keeping this balance and this issue in check. And if you aren't participating in the Own Your Expertise campaign, which is started by Matt Avram and has really been super successful and won all these awards, I suggest you do and like and share these posts because I believe being collaborative and keeping ourselves at the highest level is, is what we have control of. And I hope that we will continue to collect this data so we're aware and then just come together as a specialty. Those are great points. Again, another plug for, for ASCS. Thank you, Dr. And now we've reached our final manuscript in our, in our podcast. Uh, female dermatology residents have inadequate access to well-fitting surgical gloves at training centers. And this manuscript is from our colleagues at the Division of Dermatology in the Department of Internal Medicine at the Dell Medical School at UT Austin. The premise is that ill-fitting surgical gloves affect manual dexterity, and ultimately, in terms of development of surgical skills, it can impede them, impede this training. Sizes at the ends of the spectrum are tougher to find, whether your hands are smaller than average or larger, but particularly in terms of smaller than average appeared to be the, the issue in the observation of the authors. So in terms of their study, they wanted to assess what is the availability of surgical glove sizes in derm surgery clinics, and what is the range of glove sizes worn by derm surgery residents. They, hypo they hypothesized that female uh, surgeons and those with smaller glove sizes will be more likely to wear a uh, glove size smaller than median size that's available in clinic. That's, um, and they did a cross-sectional and survey-based study and in this study, you had to be either a Durham resident in America or a fellowship trained most surgeon. And the interesting finding in this was the finding in the resident population. And it showed that many surveyed dermatology residents reported difficulty finding the appropriately sized surgical gloves. And the figure, figure one really shows the sex distribution of the preferred glove sizes there's a shaded box that shows the glove size between the median, smallest, and largest available. 10.1% of respondent women had a size of 5.5, which was outside that shaded box. And 3.2% of the men had an 8.5, again, on the opposite end of the spectrum, but also outside the shaded box. So they conclude that women were twice as likely to report difficulty with finding the right size glove versus men. Women were three times as likely to wear a glove size outside the range of the smallest and largest median available glove sizes. And women were also less than half as likely as men to report plans to compete a most surgical fellowship. That's something I didn't bring up, but they looked to see if this data was related to their future career plans as well. They do highlight limitations of a small sample size and potential for a selection bias, given that this is a survey-based design. And they, the authors say that the findings support previous reports of associations between smaller hand size and difficulty using surgical instruments shown to be predominantly affecting female surgeons. 
And in terms of the way to rectify this, the authors suggest that strategies should be developed to increase availability of well-fitting gloves in derm surgery clinics and address other sex disparities in surgical training. Dr. Hooper, a question for you, again, as a faculty member at Tulane and LSU, do you find that the results in this study are representative of residents you work with? And if I can ask a personal question, when you were in training, did you have any difficulty finding gloves when you were in training? So in training, I, well, I actually have sort of giant hands, Artelon. So I was right in the middle. And so it was no problem for me. And I recall, though, that Debbie Hilton um, is, a, is a petite woman. And I, I think I recall that she would have this challenge. And I think that this is certainly such an easy call to action. This is a tool that we are using as dermatologic surgeons. And we must offer our residents well-fitting gloves. And so I called my residents and I was talking to Lexi Streetful, who's one of our chiefs at LSU. And she even pointed out that some of her team need extra small non-sterile gloves and they don't have those. And so number one, if you do, if you're a resident and you don't have access to the tools you need, that's an important call to action to your program director, because I can imagine that it feels a bit intimidating to, as it were, complain, but this is a tool. So I would definitely call to action that every program director should be supplying well-fitting gloves. And um, if you're not having them, you should share that with your program director. And this is an opportunity for industry support. You know, So I think that our precision demands proper tools. We have to keep our residents safe. And it would be interesting to survey other residency programs, honestly, to see if other specialties have similar issues. So thank you to the writers of this article, um, Dr. Riddle and Fox and Holmick, because I think this is something very crucial and easy to remedy. I absolutely agree, Dr. Hooper. Thank you for that insight. And we've now reached the end of our podcast. This was such an incredible experience. It was an honor and pleasure to connect with you again, Dr. Hooper. And thank you so much for your insight. And uh, looking forward to another opportunity in the future to work together. Yes, and Dr. Menakeda, it's great to come full circle with one of my residents and have this uh, cerebral and fun discussion. And hopefully everybody tunes in and please share the word about this Derm Surgery podcast. It's a great way to get your knowledge in. So thanks so much, Ardalan. Excellent. Thank you. Welcome to Beyond the Digest, offering bonus content covering surgical articles in dermatologic literature outside the peer-reviewed journal, Dermatologic Surgery. Reference the episode description for publication details of the content covered. This is Kim Tosco, and I will be reviewing poor treatment outcomes of keratinocyte carcinoma in barriers to Mohs micrographic surgery highlights the need to address access and coverage among Medicaid beneficiaries by first author Eric Beltrami and senior author Hao Fang. This article is a response to a letter by Dr. Ajay Sharma and colleagues reviewing the treatment of Medicaid beneficiaries with non-melanoma skin cancers at an institution that does not offer Mohs micrographic surgery for Medicaid patients. At this institution, only 63% of cancers were treated using a modality other than Mohs, 72% of which met appropriate use criteria of greater than or equal to seven, indicating treatment of Mohs to be appropriate. 
63% of the untreated tumors met similar appropriate use criteria scores. Authors point out the importance of such institutional policies being a barrier to these patients having access to MOS. Of those patients treated by other specialties, 70% were treated in the operating room, which incurs a much greater cost to our healthcare system. Four patients in this population experienced recurrence or metastasis after alternative treatment, highlighting even further the downstream impact of such administrative or physician-level decisions to not accept Medicaid for Mohs micrographic surgery. This is Kima Tosco, and I'll be reviewing pain of local anesthetic injection of lidocaine during subsequent stages of Mohs micrographic surgery a multi-center prospective cohort study by first author Mackenzie Durr and last author Miad Alam out of July's issue of DAD. Authors sought to determine if subsequent stages of Mohs were more painful than the first stage. Immediately after receiving anesthetic with 1% lidocaine with epinephrine, patients were asked to rate their pain on a scale from 0 to 10, 0 being no pain and 10 being extremely painful. The authors prospectively enrolled 259 patients presenting for MOS. 841 MOS stages were recorded, with 330 stages being excluded as the anesthesia had not worn off from the previous stage. This left 511 stages to be analyzed. 37% of patients rated the first stage to be of moderate pain, which the authors defined as 3 or less out of 10. This percentage rose to 44% at subsequent stages, but this was not found to be a significance. In other words, authors found subsequent stages the most to not be significantly more painful. This study supports other studies suggesting that MOS is safe, effective, and well-tolerated procedure. This is Yassel Kim, and I'll be reviewing JAD's original investigation, Prognostic Factors for Satellitosis or Intransom Metastasis in Cutaneous Squamous Cell Carcinoma, a multicentric cohort study by first author Ignacy Marty Marty and senior author Gusty Toll. Satellitosis or intransom metastasis produces a non-epidermal lesions originating between the primary tumor and the first tumor draining lymph nodes. They have been demonstrated to be an independent poor outcome risk factor in cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas. The authors aim to determine which prognostic factors of satellitosis or intransom metastasis are associated with an increased risk of relapse and specific death. This is a retrospective multi-center cohort study performed at 17 Spanish teaching hospitals. Patients with a diagnosis of squamous cell carcinoma and satellitosis or intransom metastasis between 2008 and 2022 were included. Patients with nodal or visceral metastases were excluded. A total of 111 patients with cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma and satellitosis or intransomets were identified and 86 were included for analysis. There was a male predominance of 78% with a median age of 77 years. Over half of them were immunosuppressed. The most frequent primary tumor location was the head and neck with a median diameter of 3 centimeters. 28% of the primary tumors had recurred before the first satellitosis or intransom metastasis appeared. Most were moderately to poorly differentiated. Median depth of invasion was about 6 millimeters, about 45% invaded beyond the subcutaneous tissue, and 37% had perineural invasion. 
Most patients were stage AGCCT3 or Brigham and Women's T2A or T2B. They mainly underwent surgery or surgery with radiation. The mean satellitosis or in-transit metastasis lesion um, diameter was two, two centimeters. Most presented with two to five lesions and almost half appeared within two centimeters of the primary tumor. The mean time for appearance was eight and a half months. Most were treated surgically or surgery with radiation. The median follow-up was 9.6 months. Relapse and specific death cumulative incidence at the three-year follow-up were 64% and 38% respectively. Most common types of relapses were new or progression of intransit metastasis and nodal metastases. Multivariable analysis show that a primary tumor invasion beyond subcutaneous fat or with a depth of invasion of greater than 6 millimeters, intransit metastatic lesion diameter of greater than or equal to 2 centimeters, and greater than 5 intransit metastatic lesions conferred a statistically significant increased risk of relapse. Greater than 5 lesions increased specific death risk. Patients with intransit metastases treated with surgery and radiation had the lowest relapse rate during follow-up. Among patients who received semiplomat, four of them had partial or complete response without relapse, whereas five had relapse and had increased tumor burden. This study identifies that size greater than or equal to two centimeters and the number of lesions of satellitosis or intransit metastasis are two independent new prognostic factors for relapse and the number of lesions for specific death. It also suggests that in cases where satellitosis or intransit metastasis is incorporated into future staging systems, both the size and the number of satellitosis or intransit metastatic lesions could provide guidance to stratifying risk groups. Furthermore, the best outcome was obtained when patients were treated with surgery and radiation. I think that this is a very important study with valuable insight on specific characteristics of intransit metastases that make tumors more higher risk for relapse and death. This is Yasel Kim and I'll be reviewing a brief report in JAMA Dermatology titled Anatomic Locations of Procedurally Treated Keratinocyte Carcinomas in the United States Medicare Population by first author Lucy Nafsaria and senior author Mackenzie Weiner. Keratinocyte carcinomas are the most frequently diagnosed cancers in the Western world. However, they are not included in the U.S. National Cancer Registries and information on the anatomic locations of keratinocyte carcinomas is lacking. The authors report keratinocyte carcinoma anatomic locations using a large U.S.-based claims data set. The authors conducted a study using a random sample of Medicare claims data from 2009 to 2018. All beneficiaries with at least one procedurally treated keratinocyte carcinomas were collected based on one CPT code for treatment, so excision or destruction of malignant lesion or Mohs surgery, an ICD-9 or 10 code for a keratinocyte carcinoma diagnosis on the same date. The authors evaluated the relative numbers of keratinocyte carcinomas at anatomic locations and explored the relationship between the subtype and anatomic location, adjusting for demographic variables. Of the 79 
792,393 beneficiaries with at least one treated keratinocyte carcinoma. The mean age at first diagnosis was 76.6 years, about 51.8% were women, 96.7% were white. Head and neck were the most common anatomic locations overall at about 54%, followed by the upper limb at 18%. Basal cells were primarily in the head and or neck and trunk, and squamous cells were primarily in the head and neck and the upper limb. The relative tumor densities were greatest at the head and or neck for basal cell carcinomas and squamous cell carcinomas. In women, keratinocyte carcinomas were most commonly on the head and neck, followed by the upper and lower limb. In men, keratinocyte carcinomas were more common in the head and neck, followed by the upper limb and trunk. In summary, the authors highlight the most common anatomic locations for keratinocyte carcinomas over recent years using a large Medicare cohort study. This information showed the predominance of lesions occurring at the head and neck at anatomic locations and is valuable for improved keratinocyte risk factor differentiation and skin cancer surveillance. My name is Amy Green, and I will be reviewing the research article entitled Tumor Width and Calculated Tumor Area Do Not Outperform Breslow Thickness in Predicting Sentinel Lymph Node Biopsy Positivity by Dr. Meaves and senior author Dr. Emma Johnson out of the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. There are several factors considered uh, when evaluating a melanoma patient's eligibility for a sentinel lymph node biopsy. The two biggest factors are Breslow thickness and ulceration as this influences stage. Some reports have suggested that invasive microscopic tumor width and calculated tumor area, which is the, a cross-sectional estimate of invasive tumor area, are associated with melanoma-specific survival. This study looked to see if tumor width or calculated tumor area outperformed Breslow thickness in predicting sentinel lymph node biopsy positivity in patients with primary melanoma. Tissue samples were obtained from a previous cohort where sentinel lymph node biopsy was performed within 90 days of diagnosis from 2004 to 2018. Samples were excluded if there were no digitalized H&E slide or if a blinded, board-certified dermatopathologist determined that Breslow thickness, tumor width, or calculated tumor area were unreliably detected with IHC. Tumor width was defined as the distance between the two most peripheral invasive melanoma cells, and calculated tumor area was calculated by Breslow thickness times tumor width times the estimated percent of the rectangle filled with tumor. If tumor extended to the lateral or deep margins, measurements were taken from the involved edges. 271 patients met criteria and their tumor characteristics and association with sentinel lymph node biopsy outcomes can be seen in Table 1. 67 patients had a positive sentinel lymph node biopsy and were significantly younger compared to the sentinel lymph node biopsy negative cohort. They also had significantly higher Breslow thickness, mitotic rate, ulceration, and lymphovascular invasion. Separate multivariate logistic regression models adjusting for age, sex, ulceration, mitotic rate, and lymphovascular invasion were used to assess the relationship of Breslow thickness, tumor width, and calculated tumor area with sentinel lymph node biopsy status. 
Breslow thickness added significant performance to the model after adjusting for other parameters, while tumor width and calculated tumor area contributed less. This study did not find tumor width or calculated tumor area to outperform Breslow thickness in predicting sentinel lymph node biopsy metastasis. And this just supports the already established notion that tumor vertical growth phase drives sentinel lymph node metastasis. My name is Amy Green, and I will be reviewing the research article entitled Positive Surgical Margins in Sebaceous Carcinoma, Risk Factors, and Prognostic Impact by Dr. Nolan Maloney and senior author Dr. Nora Kibbe out of Stanford. Standard of care for sebaceous carcinoma is surgical excision. Periocular sebaceous carcinoma has a higher recurrence rate, and so margin control surgery, such as Mohs surgery, is recommended for this reason. Patient and tumor level, level factors impacting margin positivity has yet to be investigated. This study looked at the National Cancer Database, looking at prognostic impact of positive surgical margins and associated risk factors. Just over 2,000 patients met inclusion criteria, and 7.4% of those had a positive surgical margin. On Kaplan-Meier analysis, patients with positive margins unsurprisingly had poorer overall survival at 54.7%, compared with those with negative surgical margins at 70.4%. Multivariate Cox proportional hazard analysis demonstrated that surgical margin status remained an independent predictor of overall survival, after adjusting for age, sex, tumor size, histologic grade, primary site, Charleston Deo score, insurance type, facility volume, and adjuvant radiation therapy. Table 1 shows the risk factors associated with positive margins, including location on the lip and ear, periocular skin, and other head and neck locations versus the trunk and extremities, tumor size of two centimeters or greater, low facility volume, as well as older age of the patient. Histologic grade and insurance status were significant on univariate, but not multivariate analysis. Patients with a positive surgical margin were more likely to receive adjuvant radiation therapy, but it was not associated with improved overall survival. Limitations of this study included lack of disease-specific survival or recurrence in the database, but it still supports the importance of complete tumor extirpation on survival and highlights risk factors associated with positive margins. This is Elizabeth Cusick and I will be reviewing the original article entitled The Impact of Facility Characteristics on Mercocell Carcinoma Outcomes, a Retrospective Cohort Study, published in this issue of the JAD by Dr. Shara Glau and Dr. Girardi. This article begins by providing the background that previous work has suggested that facility-level characteristics, including case volume and academic affiliation, are associated with patient survival for rare malignancies. Merkel cell carcinoma is a rare neuroendocrine skin cancer with high mortality and rising incidence. The effect of facility characteristics on Merkel cell carcinoma outcomes are not yet established. In this article, authors strive to perform a retrospective cohort study to investigate whether facility academic affiliation or case volume was associated with Merkel cell patient survival between the years of 2004 and 2014, utilizing the National Cancer Database. Interestingly, both facility academic affiliation and case volume were significantly associated with patient survival. The five-year survival of patients treated at academic facilities was 63%, and that of propensity-scored matched cohort 
of patients at a non-academic facility was only 53.4%. The five-year survival of patients treated at high case volume facilities was 67.4%, and that of propensity scored matched cohort of patients at low to intermediate case volume facilities was 58.6%. Treatment of Merkel cell carcinoma at academic and polyvolume centers is independently associated with significantly improved patient survival. Although this topic has not been previously studied in Merkel cell carcinoma, this finding is consistent with recent findings of the effect of these factors on survival for melanoma and non-cutaneous malignancies. Further studies evaluating comorbidities, disease-specific survival, and recurrence rates are needed to establish whether experienced centers have improved outcomes in Merkel cell carcinoma. Hello, this is Harrison Wynn reviewing the article Association of Excision Margin Size with Local Recurrence and Survival in Patients with T1A Melanoma at Critical Structures by first author Andrea Morici and senior author Mario Santanimi. Current melanoma guidelines recommend surgical excision with 10 millimeter margins for T1A melanoma, but this may be problematic at sites close to critical structures, such as the scalp, face, external genitalia, acral, periumbilical, and perineal areas. The primary aim of the study was to ascertain whether a narrower 5 millimeter excision margin versus a wider 10 millimeter excision margin was associated with local recurrence and melanoma-specific mortality. The authors performed a retrospective cohort study of approximately 1,300 patients from the National Cancer Institute of Milan diagnosed between 2001 and 2020 with T1A cutaneous melanoma close to critical structures who underwent wide local excision. Here's what they found. The weighted 10-year melanoma-specific mortality was 1.8% in the wide group and 4.2% in the narrow group. The weighted 10-year local recurrence rate was 5.7% in the wide group and 6.7% in the narrow group. Breslow thickness greater than 0.4 millimeters and mitotic rate greater than 1 millimeter squared were associated with worse melanoma-specific mortality. Multivariable analysis showed that acral litigious melanoma, lentigoma malignum melanoma, and increasing Breslow thickness were associated with a higher incidence of local recurrence. Overall, the authors conclude that the local excision with 5 millimeter margins for T1A melanoma may not be associated with an increased risk of local recurrence. However, it should be noted that the local recurrence rates of 5 to 7% reported in the study for wide local excision provide further evidence to existing literature that surgical intervention with comprehensive margin analysis, such as MOS for melanoma or slow MOS, remains a superior treatment option for melanoma on specialty sites. Thank you for listening to Derm Surgery Digest, the official podcast of the Dermatologic Surgery Journal. To access these featured articles, author videos, and much more, visit journals.lww.com dermatologicsurgery. To learn more about the American Society for Dermatologic Surgery, visit asds.net. This is Elizabeth Cusick reviewing the original article, a retrospective case series of Mohs Micrographic Surgery and Interdisciplinary Management of Female Genital Skin Cancers, Local Recurrence Rates and Patient Reported Outcomes by first author, Dr. Shannon Nugent and senior author, Dr. Christopher Miller. The 
retrospective case series begins by providing the background that conventional excision of female genital skin cancers has high rates of local recurrence and morbidity. Few publications have described the local recurrence rates and patient-reported outcomes after Mohs micrographic surgery for these female genital skin cancers. In this retrospective case series, authors evaluated female genital skin cancers treated with Mohs surgery between 2006 and 2021 at a major academic center. The primary outcome was local recurrence. Secondary outcomes were patient-reported outcomes and details of interdisciplinary care. 60, 60 skin cancers in total of 57 patients were treated with Mohs surgery in the study. Most common diagnoses that were included were squamous cell cancer, basal cell cancer, and extramammary Paget disease. Three local recurrences were detected with a mean follow-up of 61.1 months. 31 patients completed the patient-reported outcome survey. Most patients were satisfied with Mohs micrographic surgery at 71% and reported no urinary incontinence. Eight patients were sexually active at follow-up and 75% experienced no sexual dysfunction. Most cases involved interdisciplinary collaboration at 71.7%. In conclusion, this is the largest published cohort of Mohs micrographic surgery for female genital skin cancers and demonstrates that incorporating Mohs surgery in, in multidisciplinary teams can achieve low recurrence rates and satisfactory urinary and sexual function. In conclusion, further research is needed to establish indications for Mohs micrographic surgery of these skin cancers and potentially have them become standard of care practice. This is Elizabeth Kusick reviewing the research letter, Risk Factors for the, the Development of Skin Cancer Differ Between Allogenic and Autogenic Hematopoietic Stem Cell Transplant Recipients by first author Dr. Shope and senior author Dr. Wen Lee. Hematopoietic stem cell transplant is classified as either autologous or allogenic stem cell transplant. Survivors experience high rates of skin cancer post-transplantation. Mixed results exist regarding the risk of skin cancer in autologous transplants since they are not at high risk for developing graft-versus-host disease, they require shorter courses of immunosuppression than allogenic. However, autologous stem cell transplant undergo myeloablation using chemotherapy. At times can receive prolonged immunosuppressive courses and are susceptible to oncogenic viruses in addition to being transplanted for indications known to increase secondary skin cancers. In this study, authors aim to compare the incidence of post-transplant skin cancer patients in allogenic recipients with autologous. By, perform by performing a retrospective review from 2013 to 2022, of patients who had a diagnosis of skin cancer at any point. A total of 22,108 patients underwent stem cell transplant during the study period. Skin cancer developed post-transplant in 474 allogenic and 27 autologous.
No differences were detected in age, sex, white or Asian race between the groups. Skin cancer was more likely to occur in black autologous stem cell transplant than in black allogenic. Malignant melanoma was more likely to occur in autologous than allogenic. And autologous were more likely to be prescribed cyclosporin and voriconazole, which are independently associated with increased skin cancer incidence. Autologous with post-transplant skin cancer in this cohort were more likely to be prescribed the types of immunotherapies and prophylactic agents associated with cutaneous malignancy. These results suggest that autologous stem cell transplant patients may be at risk for developing cutaneous malignancy post-transplant. These risks may be different than those observed in association with allogenic and organ transplant. Thus, surveillance for cutaneous malignancy is warranted. Future multi-center studies in larger populations would help to identify these associations further. This is Elizabeth Cusick reviewing the research letter, Decreased Incidence of Merkel Cell Carcinoma in the Younger Population, Aged Below 50 Years, in the United States, SEER Analysis from 2000 to 2019, by first author Dr. Alves and senior author Dr. Orange. The article begins by providing the background that the increasing incidence of Merkel cell carcinoma is a major health concern due to its malignant and aggressive behavior. However, there is little sufficient evidence existing in the younger population. This article seeks to examine Merkel cell carcinoma incidence in the United States and how distribution varies in individuals under the age of 50. This was an observational study using the SEER18 database to identify 6,826 patients with Merkel cell. Incidence rates were adjusted to the 2000 United States standard population and two years averages. Between 2000 and 2019, the overall incidence rate increased by 1.36% overall, 1.21% for men and 1.31% for women. Conversely, a decrease in incidence rate occurred by 1.77% in patients less than 50 years. Although this change was not statistically significant, stratifying the data by sex evidenced a significant incidence rate decrease of 3.8% in men and increase of 1.31% in women. Declining incidence was persistent in subgroups of, of adults aged 45 to 49 by minus 4.04%. However, it remained stable over time in those aged 40 to 44, and data were insufficient for subjects aged less than 39 years old. Since its discovery, Merkel cell incidence has increased steadily, but these findings indicate an incidence decline in individuals aged less than 50 years old, especially in males. Although these results provide new insights for Merkel cell carcinoma, the analysis is based on only 28% of the United States population. Therefore, it may not reflect regional incidence differences. These results indicate a decreasing incidence of Merkel cell carcinoma in individuals less than 50 years of age, specifically from 45 to 49 years of old of age. 
These findings, possibly influenced by the greater use of sun protective interventions, underscore the importance of continued prevention efforts.